Hey everybody, this is Daryl Cooper and you're listening to the Martyr Made Podcast. You're about to hear the sixth episode of God Socialist, the rise and fall of People's Temple, better known as the Jonestown Suicide Cult. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes in this series, I highly recommend you go back to the prologue and work your way up from there. You'll get a lot more out of the story. It's a lot of detail, a lot of things, a lot of moving parts that you have to kind of follow along with to get the full context, I think. If you enjoy this series, please consider subscribing to my Substack page, which can be found at martyrmade.substack.com. That's where I post supplemental writings and exclusive podcast episodes available to subscribers only for just $5 a month or $50 a year. To all of you who are already contributing, I I really appreciate you allowing me to do this, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Here we go. I'm content to die for my beliefs. So cut off my head. I'm not your master. The people will always remember it. here we go. All right. No fancy intro, no intro music. We're picking up right where we left off last episode. This is part two of a single long episode. So if you're hearing this and you haven't listened to the previous episode, stop, go back and listen to that one first. Even if you don't listen to the whole series, go back and listen to the previous episode. If you haven't heard it before you listen to this one, because I'm just picking right where I left off. So I was describing how Jim's paranoia went parabolic after his failed trip back home to Indianapolis about how he'd faked an assassination attempt to rally his people to the flag and afterward began surrounding himself and the church with armed guards and security measures. You would think after that experience in Indianapolis, he would think twice about putting himself out there and taking a big risk again, but that is not Jim Jones. It never was, and it's it's not going to be going forward. A few months after the Indianapolis thing, he made the trip to Philadelphia for his attempted coup d'etat on Father Divine's peace mission movement, which we talked about in an earlier episode. And if you remember from that episode, it did not go well. He had fantasized about inheriting Divine's large and wealthy movement for over a decade, and he had spent the whole winter after the failed indie trip preparing 200 of his people for their role in facilitating the Mau Mau takeover. They all knew how important it was to him. He talked about what he was going to do when he was in charge of it and everything. And if something was this important to Father, how could they fail? But of course, they did fail. Mother Divine ran them off, and they limped back to San Francisco with nothing but a dozen or so elderly ladies that they convinced to defect for their trouble. And they spent that summer in a back-and-forth war of words with Mother Divine, making accusations and, and, and trying and failing to draw in more peace mission defectors, accusing Mother Divine of various things. Jim did not take rejection well to understate the point about as much as it's possible to understate anything. So even as the temple continued to grow, and money's starting to flow in hand over fist, Jim's paranoia and the paranoia of his people is continuing to spiral out of control. And in the late summer, something happened that made things immeasurably worse. The reporter at the Indianapolis Star who had written about his healing show back in Indianapolis, was following up on the story and wrote a letter to the San Francisco Examiner newspaper seeking some local insight into what Jim Jones and People's Temple were all about. 
That message was passed to the San Francisco Examiner's religion editor, a guy named Lester Kinsolving, Kinsolving, who had already received a letter or two from his readers about the church. And so he gets curious. And one day in the summer of 1972, this would have been right around the time that the last buses returned from the peace mission failure, which was in June of that year. Kinsolving took an examiner photographer and the two of them drove up to Redwood Valley to see what was what. And they tried to follow people as they filed into the church for the Sunday service, but they were intercepted by four or five sharply dressed young guys who said that they couldn't go in. And one of the young guys went to check with Jones, and after some conversation, it was decided that they could go in, but they had to leave the camera and any recording equipment outside. The photographer said, no way, Jose, I'm not leaving my camera. So he waited outside to take pictures of the exterior, and Kinsolving went in. The photographer, as he's making his way around the grounds, is followed by security guards at every step. He noticed that three of them are wearing handguns on their belts, another one's holding a shotgun which they explain by referencing the assassination attempts that had taken place against Jim. Kinsolving documented what he could, but the people were cagey with him around, and so he didn't get much. But now he was really curious. And so he begins making some phone calls for more information. Word got back to the temple that a major San Francisco newspaper was now investigating the movement, and Jim and his people went ballistic. Kinsolving was not some local reporter. He had a nationally syndicated column. He had recently received a full-page write-up in Time magazine, just the previous year, actually. He was a former Episcopal priest, and he didn't like these new religious movements, and he pursued stories about them like a prosecuting attorney. And so the temple soon learned that he was working with the Indianapolis Star on the story, so they were going to have background like that, and the temple went into hyperdrive. Jim did what he always did. You know, he went on the offensive. Over 50 temple members wrote letters to the examiner praising their pastor. He had his best man, Tim Stone, a lawyer um, in the Mendocino District Attorney's Office, a pillar of the community. He was the one to interface with Kinsolving to answer all his questions and try to put him off. But, you know, he was the wrong guy for that job. Uh, the, he was just too much of an overzealous true believer. And Tim Stone apparently couldn't help himself and just made things worse. In a letter to answer Kinsolving's questions, Stone wrote, quote, In case you wonder why I am so deeply interested in the matter of publicity of Jim Jones, it is this. It hurts him, even good publicity. He is anti-totalitarian, whether communist or fascist, and therefore we have extremists who recurringly try to do him in. Whenever there is publicity, the extremists seem to show themselves. He goes on. Jim has been the means by which more than 40 persons have literally been brought back from the dead this year. I have seen Jim revive people stiff as a board, tongues hanging out, eyes set, skin graying, and all vital signs absent. So yeah, great job, Tim. That should dampen his curiosity. Uh, as you can imagine, the letter didn't have the intended effect. Uh Less than a week later, both the Examiner and the Indianapolis Star ran the first of a series of stories to expose the temple. The first of Kinsolving's articles began, Redwood Valley, a man they call the Prophet, is attracting extraordinary crowds from extraordinary distances in his people's temple. His followers say he can raise the dead. He used quotes directly from Tim Stone's letter in the story. The next day, the second of seven planned installments ran. 
this time quoting a member proclaiming that Jim Jones was the incarnation of God himself. The third installment the next day went after Tim Stone directly, bringing up the strangeness that one of Mendocino County's assistant district attorneys was enthralled to some strange preacher claiming to be God. And he also started to hint toward the temple's practice of collecting welfare checks of members and social security checks of people who were living communally and working off the books for the temple. Each day, Jim set members around the city to buy up and destroy all the copies of the examiner that they could find to try to limit the exposure of the stories. About 150 people were quickly organized and shipped to the examiner's office in San Francisco, where they picketed out front all day, holding up signs that says, This paper has lied. They saw healing undeniable and would not print. And so Ken Solving, he's kind of a clown. He's enjoying the whole thing. TV cameras show up to the protest to record everything that's going on, and Ken Solving goes downstairs and goes out front to just make fun of them. Well, pickets or no pickets, the fourth story runs on schedule. And this time it reveals that another minister had asked the state attorney general's office to investigate People's Temple and reported on the ubiquitous presence of security guards and loaded weapons at all the services. This time, 200 temple members show up to the examiner headquarters to protest. They form a line around the entire block and march around all day. Jim was with them. And so the paper city editor comes out to interface with Jim, and they agreed to get the temple side of the story. And so Jim calls off the protest for now. I told you, Jim goes on the offensive. He does not wait for things to happen. So the next day, he calls up the paper, and he tells the city editor his ground rules for the interview. The editor invites him to come into the office to talk, and Jim says, no, 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 I'll send someone to pick you up. Okay? So the editor gets a call that, in a, in a little while, the editor gets a call that someone's downstairs waiting for him, and he goes down, and Jim has sent one of his followers named Chris Lewis, big black guy uh, from the inner city in Oakland, 6'2", 230 pounds or so, a violent criminal who has literally been in trouble for choking a public official at a meeting the year before, and who would murder another man the next year before later being murdered himself. And he's a rough customer, and he looks the part. And so Lewis marches the examiner editor to a waiting limousine down the block, and they get in, and the editor finds himself crammed in with Lewis on one side of him and Jones on the other, and another big black dude from the church driving, and Tim Stone turned around glaring at him from the shotgun seat in front. And as soon as he gets in, Jim and Tim Stone just start verbally assaulting him, berating him, and the limo is just driven around in circles, so he has no way out. He starts pointing at Jim starts pointing out some minor inaccuracies in the story. And Tim says that the, this is grounds to sue the examiner for libel personally. And that's something that the church is, is, is looking into. Jim claims that the series has been motivated by personal enmity against him on the part of Kinsolving. And Tim backs this up by pointing out that Kinsolving had come down and mocked their picketers, started trouble with them outside the examiner's office. That argument made a dent. But the city editor explained that Kinsolving worked in a totally different department than him, uh, directly under the executive editor. He couldn't tell him to cancel the story. And so this goes on for an hour. But as it's happening, the examiner's management team and lawyers had gotten together to discuss the issue. Uh, you know, Kinsolving's beat was religion. 
Uh, but here he was beginning to border on accusing the temple of criminal misconduct. And so the lawyers worried that he might be outside of his expertise and exposing the paper to a real lawsuit. And so they decided to hold off on the story until they could review the information. And so temple members start calling desks at the paper uh, until they get someone to give them the home phone number of the city editor with whom Jim had been speaking in the limo. The first call he received was from Tim Stone, who demanded that the paper now print a retraction and agree not to pursue any further investigations of the temple, but the city editor refused. And so a half hour later, the phone rings again. Is this John Todd? That's the city editor's name. Yes. You're presenting a story about our Reverend Jim Jones and what you're doing is hateful. May the devil never forgive you. The caller hung up. Five seconds later, the phone rings again. Todd picks it up and gets a similar message and then hangs up. Immediately, it rings again and again and again and again. And three hours later, it's still ringing. There's no break. And so he takes his family to a motel for the weekend because he doesn't know exactly what's going on here. And when they get back on Sunday, it's still ringing and continues to ring until another full day has passed. You might expect a big newspaper like the San Francisco Examiner to bite down on the mouthpiece and be like, hell no, and just go in swinging after behavior like this against one of its editors. But that's not what happened. The Examiner backed down. It killed Kinsolving Series, and it, it, in the event, no publication in the city went near Jim Jones or People's Temple for years until 1977, and that was the last time, because immediately after that, he took his people and fled to the jungle in Guyana. In the end, the story was not really a big deal. I mean, nothing really came of it. I mean, this was San Francisco in the early 1970s. People's Temple was hardly the only wacky cult or commune around the way. And the whole thing kind of passed without incident, except for the effect that it had on Jim and his people. They did not take Ken Solving's investigation as the meddling of a curious columnist looking for a juicy story. You know, they saw this as part of a clear and growing conspiracy against them. Part of the same conspiracy that had been taking down left-wing movements like the Black Panthers for years. That's how they saw it. With everything that they, the People's Temple, were accomplishing for the poor and disenfranchised, for black people, it was only natural in their worldview that the fascists would eventually come for them, and now they were. And more proof came immediately when a man who would become one of Jim Jones' most serious and dedicated followers came to the temple for the first time. His name was Mike Prokes. Michael Prokes. And he was a TV news editor and a reporter in Modesto, California. He was actually a station chief. And so he had been following the kinsolving series, and he was dismayed at how it had been killed under pressure, and so he decided to take up an expose of the temple himself. And so one day he calls the Redwood Valley Temple and asks to set up an interview with Jim, and the woman who picks up tells him to try the San Francisco location. Uh, by this point, the temple had established a permanent presence in San Francisco. And so he does. He calls San Francisco, but... Uh, he's told that Jim's not available and to try back on the weekend. And I'll let Mike Prokes himself explain what happened from there. Quote, A few days later, I received a call at my office from a man who asked if I would meet with him to discuss People's Temple. I found the request very curious. I said okay, and we met the next day in a Stockton restaurant. The man told me his name was Gary Jackson. 
I asked him what he did, and he said that he worked for the government, but I, but I couldn't get him to be more specific. He asked what prompted my interest in People's Temple. I asked him how he knew I was interested in the temple. He paused for a few moments, then said something to the effect, There are ways if you think about it. The answer was obvious. Jim Jones' phone was tapped. I told him that a series of articles in the San Francisco Examiner prompted my interest. I said I wanted to look into some of the things the article said about Jones and the temple, and if I found them to be true, I was planning to do an expose for our TV news program. Jackson, somehow I doubt that was his real name, said there was a lot more to the temple than what the examiner wrote. He said it was a revolutionary organization led by a dangerous man, bent on destroying our system of government. He talked to me a while longer, telling me various things Jones had supposedly said and done. Then he made a proposal. He said if I could be successful at joining the temple full-time as a staff member and report regularly on what was going on inside the organization, he would arrange for me to be paid $200 a week. That's over 1200 a week today, so it's pretty good money. I'm thinking back, in thinking back on it, I must have been checked out and considered to be a good prospect since I had been a dedicated Christian churchgoer, attended college in, a conservative, in conservative Orange County, a good student with no involvement in any kind of organization or activity that could be considered questionable. I told the man that I found his offer intriguing, but that I first wanted to pay a visit to the temple. He agreed, saying that I wouldn't be able to join on the first visit anyway. But he said I wouldn't be able to get a good picture of the organization until I was inside it because the public meetings were only so much posturing. I arranged to attend a service at which I heard Jones preach. Later, I got to talk with him privately. I was surprised to hear him speak so openly against the system in my presence, particularly so soon after the negative publicity about him. But I was fascinated by his ministry, and I thought it would make great stuff for a book or screenplay which I thought I might like to write. I talked with Jones for at least two hours. I asked him if he needed more staff. He said he could use as many as were willing to work voluntarily with the temple providing only living expenses. I told him it was something I wanted to give serious thought to, and he said he would be thrilled to have me. Jackson called me after a couple of days, and I told him that I was going to quit my job and accept his offer. I didn't tell him I wanted to write a book about the temple. Arrangements were made for me to be paid. The payments were left for me at various pre-designated locations, always in the form of cash enclosed in plain white envelopes. My reports were made verbally, from payphones at which I was called, because it was too risky to write anything, as there was a lot of suspicion within the temple, as one might imagine, of a reporter who quit his job, his rather prestigious job, as a bureau chief, to join an organization that didn't pay any salaries. As time passed, I gradually began to feel conflict over my role as an informant, even though I wasn't providing what one might call valuable or sensitive information. I was starting to identify with the problems and sufferings of the members. As I observed various one's troubles being resolved by the temple's programs, the conflict I was feeling turned to guilt. I had been watching Jones for some time, as closely as possible without drawing attention to myself. His schedule was unbelievable. He was up at all hours calling people on the phone, consulting, reading reports, and staying in touch with every phase of the organization. It was obvious he worked harder than anyone, but I questioned his motives. Personally, I didn't like the man after the first few months I was in the temple, but I recognized that it was for reasons that were subjective and which I didn't want to affect my judgment of his character. 
One thing I was noticing was that he was almost always the first to notice someone's need and point it out. A senior in a packed auditorium without a chair, for example, or interest in someone's health who lived alone. He was always dealing with needs, and often ones that weren't obvious to others. He seemed unusually sensitive. Every time I saw him, he was expressing concern, or doing something for someone, or asking that it be done. But he didn't leave it at that. He was keen on following up on whether the thing he had asked to be done for someone was actually carried out. Still, in view of all this, I didn't give him the benefit of the doubt. I had to be sure about him. One day I had taken some letters to his apartment in the San Francisco temple just as he was coming out the door. He was late for an appointment, so he, so he told me to put the letters on a table inside. He left and then I went out. I started back to my office and then changed my mind and went downstairs to get a drink from the water fountain. Down the hall, I noticed Jones had stopped and watched for a moment as an elderly woman moved slowly up another staircase. Jones didn't see me as he was facing the other way and there was no one else around. Even though he was late for his appointment, he was going to take another five minutes to help that woman up the long flight of stairs. She could not have seen Jones as her back was to him. He went up and began assisting her, and then I intervened and told him to go ahead, go ahead to his appointment. That act of kindness did it for me. I had become virtually convinced of Joan's sincerity. I had finally seen him do something in private that I had suspected he only did in public or when others were around to see it. I became even more convinced of his basic integrity on subsequent occasions in which I observed his actions, for example toward animals, when he was unaware that I or anyone for that matter, was around. But that first occasion was enough for me. I could no longer justify informing on Jones and his organization. During my next contact, I told Jackson what I thought of Jones, and he desperately tried to convince me that I was wrong. I told him that I had to act according to what I had seen and experienced, and my conscience simply wouldn't allow me to continue selling information that might be used against an organization I believed in. I told him that even though I didn't particularly care for Jones, and I didn't agree with some ways in which his organization was run, I felt it was making tremendous achievements in terms of human rehabilitation and improvement in the quality of people's lives and character. He asked me what I planned to do. I told him I was going to stay with the temple and possibly write a book about it. He urged me not to tell Jones about him, and I told him I saw no reason why I should do that unless I suspected somebody else was taking my place. End quote. Well, Mike Prokes did tell Jim Jones. And now I want you to imagine the effect on someone like Jim Jones in 1972 of hearing that story. Jim Jones, who, when he'd been spotted at a communist lecture in college, had had G-Man visit and interrogate his mother at work. Who, as early as 1958, had been convinced that Nazis and the KKK and run-of-the-mill local racists in Indiana were conspiring to assassinate him. Who, in 1960, had had a paranoid breakdown when he thought he was receiving extraterrestrial messages warning him of nuclear war. Who had fled to Brazil after that, following in the tracks of a childhood acquaintance who was now down there working for the CIA to train Brazilian secret police in methods of torture and counterinsurgency, an acquaintance who two years before, by the way, in 1970, Dan Mitrione, had been kidnapped and murdered by Tupamaro guerrillas in Uruguay. 
Jim Jones, who posted followers outside the community college history class that he taught because he feared that government agents were going to be listening into his socialist teachings and who had his people regularly sweep all temple locations for listening devices for the same reason and, and who went nowhere without an entourage of armed guards now who lived in terror every day of nuclear war initiated by a U.S. government that he had become convinced had inherited the mantle of fascism from the Axis powers after the Second World War and would stop at nothing to subvert and destroy movements like People's Temple. A man who often refused to sleep for fear of threats and had to knock himself out with barbiturates every night because all day, every day, he was chomping on paranoia-amplifying amphetamines. A guy who had just had two of the country's big city newspapers run simultaneous hit pieces on him and who worried every moment about internal traitors. He had just had a man who'd come to the movement from a TV news station, a man he had known for some time by this point, tell him that his phones were tapped and that he himself all this time had actually been engaged and paid as an informant by a government agent who believed the temple was a dangerous movement whose goal was the overthrow of the U.S. government. I want you to imagine the reaction of that guy to hearing that story from Mike Prokes. Whatever you're thinking, that's, that's right. That, that's how he reacted. Plus some added craziness, because you're only trying to imagine how someone like this maniac paranoid would react to something like that. And Jim Jones actually was a, a paranoid maniac. It was everything you've already heard taken up to 11. You know, the man is starting to tip over by now, along with much of the leadership and the, the dedicated inner circle members of people's temple. And you might think the whole thing sounds crazy. You know, why would the government be interested in some church that, you know, yeah, it's leaders, kind of a lunatic. And it was left wing and even communist, you know, when, when they were behind closed doors and even committing what was probably, you know, almost certainly welfare and social security fraud and so forth. But, you know, but that's not what Mike Prokes is describing. This is not the FBI looking into people's temple for possible welfare fraud. He's talking about spying on people's temple because it was considered an ideological national security threat, which is nuts, right? But it's not nuts. And for one, I tend to believe Prokes. I believe the story. Or I at least believe that he believed it, because mainly because of the way he went out. Mike Prokes was a true believer. You know, but he wasn't present when the mass suicide went down in 1978. If he was, he would have gone out with everybody else. Jim had sent him off on a mission, so he was away when it all went down. And that event, the mass suicide, did not disabuse Mike Prokes of his illusions about the movement. He believed that the whole thing was the culmination of a concerted campaign by the U.S. government and former members of People's Temple to destroy the church. That passage from him that I just read was part of a longer letter that he delivered to reporters at a press conference a few months after the mass suicide in Guyana. He called a press conference at a motel where he was staying, and the reporters were there, and he delivered his message for the cameras and the microphones, and then he said, excuse me, and he went into the bathroom in the motel room and blew his brains out to join his brothers and sisters in death. I believe him. But my belief does not require Mike Proke's credibility. For years, 
the government had been running a secret illegal program of subversion against left-wing and civil rights groups called COINTELPRO, short for counterintelligence program. A lot of what happened back then has been lost in the mainstream narrative, even though it's all out in the open. You you just don't hear about it unless you go looking or you happen to be a follower of left-wing or anti-government websites. But it's all there in official documents. The FBI, which was still under J. Edgar Hoover at the time, the world's leading law enforcement organization, and if I have any Bureau listeners, don't take it personally. I think you know where I'm coming from. The FBI once delivered a secret tape recording of Martin Luther King Jr. having an affair with a woman to his wife, which, you know, the man had his weaknesses, whatever, but this is the FBI. And then, when he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, the FBI sent him a letter purporting to be from an anonymous black man in the South informing him that his, quote, low-grade, abnormal personal behavior, which was lower than that of a beast, would be revealed to the whole world if he didn't do the dignified thing to spare his family and the civil rights movement the shame by committing suicide within one month. That FBI. The FBI made Dr. King an official target. The, the, like, the thing that caused them to make him an official target of COINTELPRO was his I Have a Dream speech in 1963. That was the official reason. An internal memo said... In the light of King's powerful demagogic speech, we must mark him now, if we have not done so before, as the most dangerous Negro of the future in this nation from the standpoint of communism, the Negro, and national security. I don't know how the FBI still exists after that, but (laughs) but that's nothing. Or not nothing, but it's just the tip of the iceberg. You know, who were some of the other people targeted by COINTELPRO? Oh, you know, nobody. You know, just like, let's see, I'll, I'll go alphabetical with the help of Wikipedia here. Martin Luther King's aide, civil rights leader, Ralph Abernathy, Muhammad Ali, James Baldwin, Fred Hampton, the Chicago Panther I mentioned earlier. We know what happened to him. Tom Hayden, Ernest Hemingway, Stanley Levison, Gene Seberg. You know what they did to Gene Seberg? She was an actress, very well known, who publicly supported the Black Panther Party. And she was married and pregnant And the FBI invented whole cloth and spread the rumor that she had been having an affair and was made pregnant by a Black Panther leader. And when the stories start showing up in the tabloids, the stress sends her into premature labor when she's overseas and her baby dies. I mean, or or was killed as far as I'm concerned. She was destroyed by this, completely destroyed. You know, she brought the, this poor woman, she brings the corpse of her baby back home to Iowa in a glass coffin because she wants people to know that she had not been unfaithful to her husband. And on the anniversary of the baby's death, she attempts suicide. After that, she just becomes depressed and paranoid, alcoholic, as you can imagine, and eventually she does commit suicide. So this is what's going on, okay? It hadn't all been revealed yet in 1972 when Jim Jones got word that he was being spied on, but some of it had. And it was just, it was well known in left-wing circles anyway that there were these things going on. It was well known because part of the point was to make people paranoid, to break up their organizations and subvert their ability to organize by making them think that they couldn't trust anyone. By 1969, the FBI had turned that Eye of Sauron onto the Black Panthers, became a primary focus, and they just tore that organization apart. I I mean, the Panthers made it easy for them in a lot of ways. Uh, 
you know, I know we've spent time on it, but you got to keep in mind how the Panthers came about. Up to the mid-60s, the whole black rights movement was pretty much a southern thing. You know, you had Malcolm, James Baldwin, some people up in Harlem, some strong roots in Chicago, back in, going back to the old days of the Defender. But, you know, it was all, that, that was mostly inward-facing. It was, it was inward-facing black people talking to themselves about, about things that are going on. The, the, the wider movement was in the South. 1966 was the first year, the first time Martin Luther King Jr. ever took his movement up to a northern city. And that was when he got hit in the head with a chunk of concrete and run out of Marquette Park in Chicago. Nobody had ever heard the term black power until Stokely Carmichael got it going that year, 66. The next year, the Panthers start out as just a couple of dudes in Oakland tooling up with some of their friends and patrolling the ghetto to provide overwatch when they find a policeman stopping a black resident. You know, they have a few camera-friendly incidents picked up by the national news, and by the end of that summer... The Panthers are a national phenomenon. Thousands of recruits pouring into dozens of cities looking to join up. And, you know, these guys were not prepared to manage something like that. And I mean that in the most rudimentary sense. I mean, that's, that's, that's a job for a CEO-level manager. And Huey Newton was a smart guy, but I don't care how smart you are. Jumping right into a job like that at a time when law enforcement is, I mean, doing everything within and without the law to come after you, it's just not realistic. And anyway, Huey was out of the picture before that first year was over. He was locked up with a bullet hole in his belly and a dead cop on his jacket. Bobby Seal was his number two, but there was a reason that Huey was in charge, even though Bobby was several years older than him. Bobby Seal was a capable, you know, make things happen kind of guy, but he was not a CEO type. And anyway, he was in and out of court and jail nonstop, too. He did some time when he left. uh, Well, shoot, let's see the first one. Well, that first year when he led the Armed Panther Squad into the California State Legislature session, he did like six months for that. He did some more time for inciting a riot at the 68 Democratic Convention in Chicago. In 70 and 71, he'd be on trial for murder. In... His 1973 book, Revolutionary Suicide, Huey Newton describes how there was so much pressure from law enforcement that he puts it this way, quote, It always seemed that time was measured not in days or months or hours, but by the movements of comrades and brothers in and out of prison and by the dates of hearings, releases, and trials. Our lives were regulated not by the ordinary tempo of daily events, but by the forced clockwork of the judicial process, end quote. Eldridge Cleaver was probably the third one that might have taken the mantle, but he fled the country after his 1968 shootout with police. You know, this, the Panther organization rose so fast and spread so fast, and then the prestige leadership was taken off the board so quickly that, as a result, there was just no one out there with the juice nationally to exert, you know, sort of coordinating control, and who was actually free and around and able to do it. The organization became so shot through with informants and agents provocateur that you know, paranoid panthers very quickly were torturing and murdering other panthers they suspected of snitching for the cops. And by 1969, they had to close their roles to new members altogether just because they couldn't vet people. One of the most well-known incidents involved the torture murder of a panther named Alex Rackley. After the Panther 21 plot to murder those NYPD officers was stopped by informants, the West Coast Panther headquarters sent out some of its own to instill some discipline into the East Coast chapters. 
paranoia about informants by this point was endemic. And Alex Rackley was one of many who came under suspicion. So the incident occurred in New Haven, Connecticut, in the bedroom of a local Panther's seven-year-old daughter to whose bed Rackley had been tied. They tortured him for days to get a confession and then held a phony trial to issue his sentence and recorded the whole thing on audio tape. Actually, I'm not going to play it for you here. It's, it's ugly, but you can go listen to it. You got male Panthers berating Rackley, beating him in the head and groin and lower back with a blunt object, while Panther women can be heard in the background attending to auxiliary tasks like preparing the pots of boiling water that they poured all over Rackley's body for days. The Panther number two, Bobby Seal, visited New Haven for one day, arriving just a few hours before Rackley was killed, and the chief torturer and killer on the tape, George Sams, one of the Panthers who was sent out by Oakland to instill discipline, confessed that Seal had personally ordered Rackley's murder. Rackley's body was found soon after, bound and mutilated, burned by the boiling water and cigarettes, cut up with an ice pick, tied around the neck with a noose made from a coat hanger, shot to death and dumped in a river. And so the chief culprits are arrested. Bobby Seals arrested a short time later after George Sams confesses. And the trial blows up and becomes a national story known as the New Haven Nine. Celebrities took up the Panthers' cause, and Panther activists as well as veterans of the student movement like Tom Hayden flood into New Haven to stir up protests, especially at Yale University, which kind of becomes the headquarters. Everyone who was anyone in the celebrity left was there. Allen Ginsberg, Jerry Rubin, Abby Hoffman, everybody had to be there. The whole thing became a big festival. Radical attorneys and activists held a Panther fundraiser in one of the Yale University halls, where Yale University was denounced as one of the biggest pig organizations by the Panthers' New Haven area captain, Doug Miranda, who also accused the university as clearly having something to do with this whole conspiracy against the Panthers. He told his audience of nice Yale students uh, that basically what we're going to do is create conditions in which white folks are either going to have to kill pigs or defend themselves against black folks. We're going to turn Yale into a police state. And so they're holding meetings. taking They've just taken over Yale campus. And at meetings, campus radicals are floating ideas such as kidnapping the university president, who is a, a guy named Kingman Brewster, a thoroughly befuddled old-school liberal who is completely out of his depth. I mean, he's actively doing everything he can to try to appease these people, but he's completely out of his depth. Others are suggesting shutting off New Haven's water supply and using it as ransom. Others are demanding a moratorium on classes and making Yale pay a half-million-dollar donation to the Panther Defense Fund. The radical lawyers representing the Panthers love that one, as you can imagine. And Doug Miranda, the Panther captain, told a group of students that they only they had, quote, the power to prevent a bloodbath at Yale. And students were marching around the campus saying, if Bobby dies, Yale fries. Two bombs were set off at the campus hockey rink. The position of the Panthers and the students, as well as a good chunk of the Yale 
professors who jumped onto the bandwagon was made explicit. It didn't matter what had or hadn't happened to Alex Rackley. American courts had no legitimacy to decide the fate of the Panthers. Reflecting on this period, this wasn't the only one, and this is not even close to the most dramatic of these student takeovers from this period. Reflecting on the period, uh, the scholar John Silber wrote, quote, Academics developed a novel meaning for the term political crime, which had once meant an action rendered criminal solely by its political content, but which now came to mean a crime, however vicious, justified by its political motivation. The new definition of political crime found swift adoption not merely on college campuses but throughout the world as hijackers, kidnappers, killers, and Watergate plumbers justified their contempt for the law through inappropriate appeal to political motivation. Not only was political crime given a novel meaning, the concept of academic freedom was transformed. Once, it entailed an immunity for what was said and done by dedicated, thoughtful, conscientious scholars in pursuit of truth or the truest account. Now it came to entail, rather, an immunity for whatever is said and done, responsibly or carelessly, within or without the walls of academia, by persons unconcerned for the truth, who, reckless, incompetent, frivolous, or even malevolent, promulgate ideas for which they can claim no expertise, or even commit deeds for which they can claim no sanction of law. End quote. Well, it worked. In the end, uh, the jury was deadlocked, and the judge, siding with the activist's claim that there was no way the Panthers could receive a fair trial by an unbiased jury, dismissed the charges on seal and one of the Panther women, whose lawyer claimed that her, her participation in the interrogation and casual assistance in the torture which was all on tape, was actually done under duress and that she had participated only out of intimidation by the Panther men. While Bobby Seal had been in jail, his wife got pregnant by another Panther named Fred Bennett, and shortly after Seal got out, Bennett's body was found mutilated in a Panther hideout. The cops couldn't find any direct evidence to put the murder on Seal, so when it became clear that they weren't going to be able to charge him, he wrote a provocative article called One Less Oppressor where he crowed that, quote, the people have now come to realize that the only way to deal with the oppressor is to deal on our own terms, and this was done, end quote. Seal's a funny guy. In 1973, he actually ran for mayor of Oakland, came in second out of nine candidates. He just lost a runoff to the incumbent, or he might have been mayor of Oakland. Um, the next year, he and Huey Newton got into a fight over a Panther movie that somebody wanted to produce. And so Huey and his bodyguards beat down Bobby Seal, and the two kind of officially split. That was later than the time we're talking about right now, though. My point I was getting at was in 1969, 1970, Panther leadership's all over the place. And law enforcement is riding them hard, and the organization's in disarray. And also that, as horrific as the murder of Alex Rackley was... Incidents like that were explicitly part of the goal of COINTELPRO as it concerned the Panthers. You can't organize if no one trusts each other, and encouraging internecine conflict, even bloody murderous conflict, was exactly what the FBI was going for here. Eldridge Cleaver, the best-selling author of Soul on Ice, and he was the Panther Minister of Information after, after 1967, he became the guy with Huey in prison and Bobby Seale being in and out of court, but that didn't last long either. 
Um, spring of 68, after the Martin Luther King assassination, he goes out with some friends, gets into a shootout with the cops, surrenders after he runs out of ammunition, but he was let out on bail and he fled to Cuba in 1968. And Cleaver is always kind of a nut. Uh, he arrived in Cuba hoping to set up training camps for black guerrillas who were going to prepare for war in the United States, but Castro would never even meet him. And so Cleaver hung around Havana for six months or so before he was spotted by a news reporter. Castro decides it's not worth the trouble keeping him around, so he puts him on a plane and sends him to Algiers. Now, Algiers was revolutionary central in the late 60s. Had been since gaining its independence from France in 1962. The Algerian government had established close ties with the Soviet Union and gave official cover to dozens of revolutionary groups from around the world. You know, radical groups like the Palestinian Liberation Organization and famous individual revolutionaries. They were given offices, equipment, funding, official diplomatic recognition. It took some doing, but Cleaver eventually got official recognition as the head of the Black Panthers International Section from the Algerian government. And they put him up in an embassy building that had previously been used by the North Vietnamese. And once he's in there, he calls a press conference. And Cleaver announces that he was now calling on all Black Panthers uh, across the United States and all black people across the United States to rise up. The time had come. He told the press that, quote, the Nixon clique had begun to group the black people in concentration camps escalating repression to the level of overt fascist terror against those who dare resist the oppression of the diabolical system under which the blacks of the United States are suffering. We reject the temple of slavery, which is the United States of America, and we intend to transform it into a social system of liberty and peace. How would the transformation be accomplished? If you know anything about Eldridge Cleaver, you know he had only one speed. The time had come to begin waging urban guerrilla war in the United States. Those who could not themselves fight had a responsibility to help in any way they could. And Cleaver was joined in Algiers soon after that by more Panthers who were fleeing charges in the United States. One was named Sekou Odinga, very serious guy, who had been born in Queens as Nathaniel Burns in 1944. The Panther 21 would have been known as the Panther 22, but Sekou Odinga was the only one who avoided capture during the mass arrests. Odinga is probably the hardest guy out of this whole period. Maybe I'd put Willie Morales of the FALN at the top spot. The FALN was a revolutionary Puerto Rican terrorist cell operating in New York in the 70s, and Morales was one of its leaders and bomb makers. And one day, Morales is making bombs in his apartment in New York, working off a homemade manual full of notes with a cover that read, In This We Trust. One of the bombs goes off in his hands. The explosion is heard up and down the street. Both of his hands are almost completely blown off. Nine of his fingers, all but the left thumb, are blown all over the apartment. His face is burned up. A chunk of metal goes into his chin, breaks his jaw in five places, and knocks out a bunch of teeth. His lips are completely ripped off, and his left eye is toast. Somehow, Morales gets himself together and realizes that this explosion is going to bring police and that the apartment is full of documents that are going to implicate his friends in the FALN. And so he somehow gets the documents into the bathroom, 
and starts flushing them down the toilet, tearing them up and flushing them down the toilet. Later, the cops were able to follow his trail of blood all around the apartment to retrace his steps. There were bloody stump smudges all around the bathroom doorknob because apparently the door had closed behind him and he had to get it back open with just his stumps. Once the documents were disposed of in the toilet, he locks all the windows and the door to the apartment, and then he blows out the pilot lights on the gas stove, turns the gas up to high and lets it fill the apartment, and then sits there and waits for the cops to arrive. When they, when they did, the plan was he would, you know, they, they would have to turn a light on or maybe he could stay awake long enough to make them shoot at him and the place would blow up so that any remaining evidence in there would be destroyed and he could take a bunch of cops with them on the way out. But in the event, firefighters got there first and Morales is about passed out by that point. The firefighters, a little more alert to what's going on, they smell the gas, they back out and call the cops the situation is diffused, and Morales is put in handcuffs and sent to the hospital. Once he's awake in the hospital, face all covered in bandages, I mean, you can imagine, the cops come into his hospital room to see if they can ask him some questions. When they try to say something to him, he manages to get out through all his bandages, out of a mouth with no lips or teeth and a broken jaw. Fuck you. Fuck yourself. So then he goes to prison, of course. Some years later, a supporter manages to smuggle a wire cutter to him. He still has no fingers on his hands, and most of his hands are gone. Over the next two nights, he uses his stumps to cut through the wire grate covering his cell window, and he punches out the screen with one of his stumps. But his window is 40 feet off the ground. So several supporters are waiting below with a ladder, but the ladder doesn't reach anywhere close to his window. He manages to tie 10 feet of bandage to one end of his bed, struggles through the window opening, and he starts shimmying down the wall of the building using the bandage, but it breaks almost right away, and he falls about 20 feet down onto a window-mounted AC unit, and from there, the rest of the way down onto the grass. And no one at the prison knew a thing until the next morning, and by then it was too late. He was gone. So yeah, maybe Willie Morales gets the nod, but one of the supporters who'd helped him get out was Seku Odinga, and Odinga's on the short list too. He grew up hard in Queens. He had a reputation as someone who was not to be messed with by the time he was a teenage gangbanger. He was in prison for mugging by the time he was 16, and prison was where he discovered Malcolm X. Not in person, but his writings. One of his childhood friends was already in the same prison, and he was a little ahead of Odinga on the path of black radicalism. His name was actually still Nathaniel Brown at this point. He wasn't Sekou Odinga yet. When they got out in 1963, they wanted to go join Malcolm's entourage's circle, but they only even saw him once before he got assassinated, so that was discouraging, but they stayed on the path. They start wearing... Dashikis after Odinga He's asked to model some traditional African clothing At the 64 World's Fair And before long he's making them for himself and others Really getting into African history And and black American history By 1965 The year Malcolm got killed He was all in He had changed his name from Nathaniel Brown To Sekou Odinga After the Guinean nationalist Sekou Torre And he and his friend from prison eventually join up with the New York Panthers, and before long, he's made the section leader of the Panthers in the Bronx. 
He was 24 years old when the cops came up the stairs of his apartment to arrest him for his role in the planned mass murder of the New York cops in January 69, the Panther 21 incident. He was sleeping when they came. From Brian Burrow, quote, Odinga woke when he heard a noise. Pressing his ear to the door, he sensed what was happening. He heard footsteps on the roof. He was surrounded. He stepped into the bathroom, glanced around, and saw what he would have to do. Struggling into his clothes, he grabbed a carbine by his bedside and yelled, Who's there? The police! Open the door! Give me a minute, I'm putting my clothes on. Once he had the speaker's attention, Odinga stepped to the front door and loudly clicked around into the gun's chamber. He's got a gun, came the shout. He's got a gun! As the police scattered for cover, Odinga raced into the bathroom, where a tiny window, no more than 12 inches wide, was open. Outside was a four-story drop to an alley below. Leaving his rifle behind, he squeezed through the window and slid one hand onto a concrete drain pipe that ran down the building. Leaving the safety of the window, he clasped the drain pipe with both hands and both feet and began shimmying down. He managed to descend about ten feet when a voice cried from below, There he is! There he is! Odinga sprang from the wall and jumped, landing nearly thirty feet below on the roof of a one-story garage. As he landed, his knee struck his chin and nearly knocked him unconscious. He stood, woozy, and heard the cries of policemen all around. Stepping to the edge of the roof, he leaped into a tree, only to have the branches break, dropping him to the pavement below. He limped to a nearby brownstone, tried its door, found it locked, then tried another, and another, and another, until he found an unlocked basement door. Inside, he curled himself into a ball and hid behind an oil tank. Police cordoned off the block and began, to house, began a house-to-house search. For hours, Odinga listened as they tromped about. His luck held. No one came into the basement. When darkness fell, he uncoiled his aching body, stepped from the basement, hailed a gypsy cab, and vanished. End quote. The next I know of his whereabouts is when he shows up in Algiers to be with Cleaver at the end of the summer of 1970, right as the Panther 21 trial was gearing up and the Panthers began their final descent into madness. The Panther 21 trial was a major cultural event. Lawyers for the Panthers turned the defense into a cause celeb, building on and perfecting the strategy that was used for Huey Newton in the Free Huey campaign in 68 and 69 and for the New Haven Nine in 1970. The lawyers realized that at a moment like the one America was in, things had changed. The press conferences and protest rallies were as important to the defense as jury selection and closing arguments. A straightforward case about a conspiracy to commit mass murder of police officers was turned into a referendum on where you stood on the civil rights movement and on the history of and treatment of black people in America as a whole. If you thought the Panther 21 were guilty, then that meant that you were on the you were on one side of that culture war. If you thought they were innocent, it meant you were on the other side. And if you can accomplish that in a polarized environment where roughly one half of the country falls on each side and nobody's really neutral, the chances that you can get a jury of 12 people to agree on a conviction are pretty slim. Big-name left-wing celebrities were enlisted to raise money for the legal defense and also to turn one's position on the Panther 21 into a political fashion statement. To believe in the Panther's innocence was to 
indict the conspiracy against them, hatched by the same people who dragged us into Vietnam and who had elected Nixon and, and, and everything like that, you know, who had defended Jim Crow and slavery before that. And to believe in their guilt was to be a reactionary defender of all those things. The Panthers' defense lawyers used the opportunity to turn themselves into celebrities. One of the ultra-posh celebrity fundraisers for the Panther 21 was given by the famous composer Leonard Bernstein and provided the material for Tom Wolfe's famous book, The True Account Called Radical Chic. That evening's events consisted primarily of these ultra-wealthy celebrities giving self-congratulatory speeches to each other about the plight of African Americans between sips of expensive champagne and caviar and ooing and aahing over these beret-wearing Panthers who had been brought in just to stand around in Bernstein's Manhattan penthouse as party props. It's a hilarious book. But for all the support that the Panther 21 were getting from these wealthy white celebrities, they were getting much less than they expected from the party leadership in Oakland, which was still reluctant to associate itself with these growing calls for violence that had been coming out of New York. Even to the extent that Oakland wanted to help, you know, they just lacked the financial resources to make much of a dent. With much of the New York leadership locked down, Oakland sent some of its own people out to New York to take over the chapter, and this made relations between the two cities even worse. In addition to their basic difference in approach, which we kind of talked about earlier in the first part of this episode, you know, the New York set felt disrespected by the California members who, you know, they kind of smirked at the dashikis and the whole Mother Africa thing. They weren't into that, and they thought it was kind of ridiculous, and they let that be known. One New Yorker named Blood McCreary years later said, Panthers on the street, we felt put upon, abused, distrusted. You don't trust our new leaders? They treated us like a bunch of idiots, fucking our women and stealing our money. Those motherfuckers, they were running amok. Huey Newton's lawyers had managed to get his conviction overturned in August of 1970, a month before the Panther 21 trial was getting going. But by that point, the rift between the two groups, the two cities, was very deep. It's doubtful that Huey could have done anything to repair it, even if he had been operating at full capacity the day he stepped out of prison. But that was not true either. He'd been locked up for three years, and things had changed in those three years. When Huey went down, Martin Luther King was still alive. LBJ was still president. SDS still existed. Nobody had ever heard of the weathermen or of white kids trying to assassinate cops with nail bombs. Alex Rackley had not been tortured to death by other Panthers, and Fred Hampton hadn't been murdered by the police. You know, Huey had considered the possible dangers of what he was doing when he founded the Black Panther Party, but this, none of this had been part of the plan. And he just had his first taste of prison, and he did not like it. He, he did not like the idea of going back. And as he began to make his first public appearances, there were people out there who were whispering that he seemed like a tentative shell of his former self. There were rumors that he was living like a recluse, holed up in an Oakland penthouse, just doing mountains of cocaine, never coming out. When Eldridge Cleaver announced from Algeria that it was time for armed revolution, Huey dismissed the idea. And so Cleaver starts questioning Huey's leadership, and the New Yorkers are siding with Eldridge Cleaver. Cleaver is safe out in Algiers, and so this is when he decides to make his move. He starts denouncing Huey Newton's 
reticence, calling him soft and praising the New York Panthers for their militancy. Huey turns it around, denounces Cleaver, and Panthers around the country begin to take sides, with most chapters outside of New York sticking with Huey. But again, New York is New York, and they carried a lot of weight. The FBI is watching all this unfold and loving it, and they use it as an opportunity to turn up the heat. They start forging letters between Panthers, describing plots by Huey Newton to kill Eldridge Cleaver and the New York Panther leadership. Other letters describing plots by Cleaver and the New Yorkers to do the same thing to Huey Newton and his people. They're forging notes claiming that Panthers are sleeping with each other's wives and girlfriends and sisters. I mean, they're really trying to start a war and get these people to start killing each other. And they would get their wish. That's exactly what would happen. Panther chapters all over the country start arming up in anticipation of a coming war. There are rumors that Eldridge Cleaver is trafficking drugs and guns from Algeria and that he's plotting a coup d'etat and that he'd gone insane. When one SoCal Panther working on Cleaver's orders was arrested in the South trying to organize a guerrilla force in the urban areas down there, Huey Newton expelled the arrested guy from the party. Some New York Panthers objected to that, and so Huey expelled them from the party. And so now Cleaver's openly denouncing Huey, and people are beginning to talk about like an official split. In an attempt to roll back this unfolding crisis, a phone call is put together for Newton and Cleaver to work out their differences in public. From Burroughs, quote, The call was to air live on Jim Dunbar's AM San Francisco television talk show on February 26th. It's in 1971 now. Cleaver reluctantly agreed, but he suspected he was walking into a trap. Both men went ahead. It was a disaster. As Newton sat in a Bay Area television studio, Cleaver opened the conversation by insisting that the New York Panthers be reinstated. Newton again refused, saying those purged had plunged into counterproductive avenues of violence and adventurism. Cleaver was just getting started. Terming the Central Committee inept, he demanded their resignation. When Newton again refused, the two men simply talked past each other. The high point came when Cleaver denounced Newton personally, called for immediate guerrilla warfare against the U.S. government, and said that he would now direct the real Black Panther Party from Algiers. Afterward, Newton expelled Cleaver. Cleaver then expelled Newton. End quote. So everything's chaos after that. There's no organization or leader in any position to do anything other than make it worse. Calls start flooding in to the Oakland headquarters from chapters all over the country looking for guidance on what they should do. And most chapters stuck with, stuck with Oakland, stuck with Huey Newton. Leaders from sectors up and down the eastern seaboard met in Harlem, and most of them decided to stay the course, but Harlem, Brooklyn, Queens, and the Bronx sided with Eldridge Cleaver. The New York chapter seceded from the Black Panther Party amid rumors that Newton death squads were prowling the streets of New York looking for them. Quote, The only constant was the rumor of imminent warfare between East and West Coast Panthers. One popular New York Panther told reporters that Newton had dispatched as many as 75 robots to wipe out the New York leadership. Overnight, the Panther offices in Harlem and the Bronx were transformed into fortresses. Guns were stockpiled. Windows were boarded. At any minute, they believed, Newton's assassins would strike, end quote. So it's only a matter of time when, when this is how it is before a spark lights the tinder 
and COINTELPRO provided the spark. As it happened, the spark had floated over to NYC from the West Coast, but not in the way that the New Yorkers had expected it. It came in the form of a 22-year-old Bay Area Panther field marshal who had been sent out as part of the Oakland delegation to get things under control a year earlier. But once he got there and spent some time with these hardcore Africanist militants in New York, he liked what he saw and he decided to stay with them. And the truth is nobody actually knows what happened. You know, I, I wouldn't want to be unfair to COINTELPRO after all. Um, there was a memo written to J. Edgar Hoover one month after the fact that credited COINTELPRO with causing this Oakland-turned-NYC Panther to be shot in the back of the head by an unknown assailant's three fifty seven Magnum on March 8, 1971. And from there, it was on. As far as everyone was concerned, all the rumors were true. Things began to happen fast. Panthers began to drop as scores were settled all over the place. New York Panthers, who felt pinched between the police on one side and Huey's assassins on the other, began to organize and go underground as part of what was about to be called the Black Liberation Army. The name Black Liberation Army had been tossed around before, but this is where the real thing got started. One of the initial cells was made up of heavy hitters out of the Jamaica section of Queens, Washington Heights, and Brownsville. Others started popping up out of Brooklyn and the Bronx and other parts of the city as Panthers who were looking for action made their way to New York to be a part of it. They set up a bunch of safe houses and a makeshift clinic in a townhouse for BLA members who ended up getting wounded as they expected and knew would be the case. The first task was to get money for rent and weapons and other supplies and needs. One of the Panthers explained how they went about that. Quote, I knew all these major drug dudes, Nicky Barnes, Tito Johnson, Albie Simmons, from the Bronx and from prison. It was a natural place to get money. So when we first went underground, we started taking down heroin dealers. We were really rolling these motherfuckers. They gave us information, too. When we rolled Tito, he says, there's a lot of pressure. We can't work. The cops are all over us wanting information on you. That's how we found out the police were trying to use the dealers against us. We bashed down a lot of doors, man. We were like black cops. End quote. Another BLA leader remembered, quote, There were actions all over the five boroughs. There were people in the drug business who were setting up others for us to move on. We raised a lot of money that way, and we were letting them know that drugs would not be tolerated anymore. End quote. Their first targeted action, not the drug takedowns, but their, their actual action, was to take revenge on Oakland for the murder of their comrade. So in mid-April, a bunch of them pile into a U-Haul truck and drive up to the Queen's office of a Panther newspaper that's still loyal to Huey Newton. It was run by a 32-year-old named Sam Napier. They bust into the place and tie Napier up with a cord from a Venetian blind, torture and mutilate him for a while, shoot him four times, and then burn his body. Two days after that killing... Three BLA Panthers were overheard on the street discussing a robbery. They were overheard by an ordinary citizen who goes and flags down a police cruiser and tells them about it. And so the cops approach those Panthers, and when they do, one of them pulls a pistol and just starts shooting. And the air fills up with bullets as the officer starts shooting back. One of the cops is hit in the face, and he goes down, and the other was shot in the thigh. The one who was hit in the thigh stays in the fight. He kills one of the men, injures another, and the third, who had taken a bullet in the shoulder, manages to escape. 
At the time, the cops don't know what they're dealing with. The cops think that they just gotten into a firefight with some criminals. And so the man wounded in the shoulder who got away, he makes his way back to the Panther Townhouse Clinic and has his wounds dressed by Asada Shakur, later on one of the more important members of the BLA, and he tells everyone about what happened. The BLA cadres began planning their revenge on the cops immediately. It would come one month later on May 17th from Burroughs. Quote, At 9 p.m., a green and white cruiser relieved the watch outside the home of New York District Attorney Frank Hogan, who faced threats during the trial of the Panther 21. Inside the patrol car sat a pair of 39-year-old patrolmen, Thomas Curry and Nicholas Benetti. Darkness had fallen barely 15 minutes later when, to their dismay, a dark maverick suddenly sped past, going the wrong way down 112th Street, a one-way street. Officer Benetti wheeled the car into a sharp U-turn and gave chase as the maverick swerved left onto Riverside Drive. Six blocks later, at 106th Street, Benetti managed to pull alongside the maverick. At that moment, the driver, one of two or three black men inside, crouched in his seat. From the passenger side, the ugly nose of a 45 caliber submachine gun appeared. In a split second, a geyser of bullets blasted the patrol car. The windshield exploded. Officer Benetti was struck eight times in the neck, stomach, and arms. Officer Curry was hit in the face, neck, and chest. One bullet severed his optic nerve. The patrol car veered to its left and smashed into a stone staircase beneath the statue of Civil War General Franz Siegel. The Maverick roared away, vanishing into the gloom. A few moments later, after briefly losing consciousness, Officer Benetti came to. Glancing to his right, he saw his partner lying outside the car, his uniform stained with blood. Before passing out once more, Benetti managed to palm the car radio. 26 Boy Charlie, 26 Boy Charlie, he murmured. We've been shot. We've been shot. Two nights after the shootings on Riverside Drive, Two officers from the 3-2, Waverly Jones, 33, and Joseph Piagentini, 28, stepped from their squad car and walked into Colonial Park to answer a call about a woman hurt in a knife fight. When the woman refused their help, the two ambled back to their car. As they did, they passed two young black men lounging on the fender of a parked car. The men fell in behind them. A moment later, the men drew pistols and opened fire. Officer Jones, who was black, was struck three times, first in the back of the head, then twice in the spine. He died instantly. The second gunman fired repeatedly into Officer Piagentini, who fell to the sidewalk, but, as the gunman cursed him, refused to die. The first gunman then reached down and removed Officer Jones's thirty-eight, hefting it in his hand, feeling its weight as if it, as if it were taking a souvenir. The second gunman wrenched Piagentini's weapon from his holster even as the dying officer flailed at him. Once he had it, he fired every bullet in its chamber into the fallen cop. Still, Piagentini wouldn't die. The first gunman stepped to his prone body, pointed his own forty-five downward, and fired a single shot. Then, both shooters turned and walked away. Behind them, Officer Piagentini, in his last moments of life, began crawling toward the safety of a green hedge, a trail of blood in his wake. The next morning, the coroner would count twenty-two bullet holes in his body. End quote. And so that night, two packages are delivered, one to the New York Times and another to a Harlem radio station. Inside the packages are the license plates of the Maverick, which would have been called in by officers Benetti and Curry in the minutes before their shooting, and a forty-five caliber cartridge mat- matching the murder weapon from the second. 
Quote, May 19, 1971. All power to the people. Here are the license plates sought after by the fascist state pig police. We send them in order to exhibit the potential power of oppressed peoples to acquire revolutionary justice. The armed goons of this racist movement will again meet the guns of the oppressed third world people as long as they occupy our community and murder our brothers and sisters in the name of American law and order. Just as the fascist marines and army occupy Vietnam in the name of democracy and murder Vietnamese people in the name of American imperialism are confronted with the guns of the Vietnamese Liberation Army, the domestic armed forces of racism and oppression will be confronted with the guns of the Black Liberation Army, who will mete out justice in the tradition of Malcolm and all true revolutionaries' real justice. We are revolutionary justice. All power to the people. End quote. Three nights later, the radio station received a second package with this note, quote, Revolutionary justice has been meted out again by righteous brothers of the Black Liberation Army with the t- death of two Gestapo pigs gunned down as so many of our brothers have been gunned down in the past. But this time, no racist class jury will acquit. Acquite, actually. They mean acquit. Them. Revolutionary justice is ours. Every policeman, lackey, or running dog of the ruling class must make his or her choice now. Either side with the people, poor and oppressed, or die for the oppressor. Trying to stop what is going down is like trying to stop history. For as long as there are those who will dare live for freedom, there are men and women who dare to unhorse the emperor. All power to the people. End quote. Now, this sudden dive into revolutionary murder had come quickly and without a plan. You know, they had jumped into it and gone underground because, you know, they thought that they had law enforcement on one side and Huey Newton's assassins on the other, and they had to do something and and get out of here. So they got started ahead of schedule. And the BLA members were not ready for the heat that came down on them. The head of the police union called a press conference, and he told reporters that the cops were straight up in a war. Quote, It's open season on cops in this city. I refuse to stand by and permit my men to be gunned down while the mayor does nothing to protect them. Accordingly, I am instructing them to secure their own shotguns and carry them on patrol at all times. Asked if he thought that would make a difference, he said, I don't know, but we'll do whatever's necessary. If we have to patrol this city in tanks, that's what we'll do. This is a war. One of the members, BLA members, Blood McCreary, remembered, quote, We had no idea. No idea what we were up against. We had really hoped that established revolutionary organizations, that they could point to us and say that unless certain things are dealt with in society, this is what you're going to be dealing with. But we were so young. We didn't know what we were doing. The cops, the government, man, they were killing us. Everywhere we looked, there were cops. End quote. See, the authorities were monitoring all phone calls to Cleaver's base back in Algiers, but they didn't even, it it didn't really make much of a difference. They didn't hear much more than bickering and complaints. After a while, even making the calls was hard. You know, this is the early 70s, and it was very expensive to call another continent. And mostly they did it using stolen credit cards, but as police pressure ramped up, it got more difficult even to procure those without undue risk. They couldn't go near the Panther offices in Harlem or any of the people who were still on the grid because the cops were on them 24-7. Another BLA leader said, To follow Algeria, that was the initial plan. 
When the split went down, we were following the instructions of Eldridge in D.C. He means Don Cox, that's D.C., uh, who is actually the panther that Leonard Bernstein used as his party prop at his Radical Chic fundraiser in that Tom Wolfe book. Uh, By now, Don Cox had fled to Algeria to get out of a Baltimore murder charge. Anyway, we were following the instructions of Eldridge in D.C. and Algiers. Denise Oliver, the editor of Cleaver's Quarterly Magazine, brought back these audio tapes from them with guidelines so we could read them out to people, our people, but also ones Geronimo Pratt, another panther, had organized in California and in the South. But then everything changed. The reality on the ground was people were scrambling and running for their lives. After the police shootings on May 19th, it became a real war between the police and us. It got harder to talk to Algeria. And Cleaver was not going to be much help to them, even if they could talk to him. For one, he had ordained from the beginning that the BLA was supposed to have no centralized organizational structure. You know, each cell was just supposed to go off and kind of run its own independent revolution, do its own thing. But there's nothing that a cell of a dozen or two dozen people can do against the institutions of the United States government except for create a little chaos and wait for their number to come up. And there's some evidence, too, that Cleaver's mind had already begun to slide toward its eventual fate by this point. He spent his time secluded in the embassy in Algeria, smoking hash and talking on the phone most of the time. He was riding these delusions of grandeur, you know, thinking he was the leader of some global uprising, writing these overwrought violent screeds and poems for his magazine and imagining that something was going on back in America very different from what the people on the ground were actually dealing with. Most of the money that he raised was coming from a Panther fan club in Paris, and he spent most of that on a Marxist library and a bunch of electronic equipment that he imagined would be used to make videotapes to be distributed to revolutionaries around the world. He had commissioned this giant wall-sized interactive electronic world map that he showed to a British reporter who stopped by for a visit. This is from the reporter, quote, Cleaver begins flicking switches on a console, and slowly, all over the world, lights come up. There is one color for the Panther headquarters in America, another color for liberation groups engaged in armed struggle in Africa, Brazil, Vietnam. There is another color for solidarity groups. We have a solidarity group in China, Cleaver says with a laugh. Its chairman is Chairman Mao. Finally, one last light goes on, much bigger than all the rest, in bright red. It is in Algiers. That is the witch doctor, Cleaver says with a grin. He gesticulates in the direction of the map. We will make videotapes of the struggles going on all over the world, but we don't call it videotape. We call it voodoo, because it has, like, magical properties. You know how electricity moves? It's kind of mysterious. It's invisible. End quote. Seku Odinga, who was in Algiers with Cleaver throughout this period, said that the reality was that once the BLA went underground, Cleaver became more of a figurehead than a real leader. Quote, Cleaver was not a military man. He only thought he was. It was Don Cox who had the military mind. He was a brilliant strategist. It may have looked like Cleaver was leading the BLA, but he wasn't. He just talked the talk. But the decisions... The decisions were made by D.C. and me and Setaweo, which is a guy named Michael Tabor, who we haven't talked about. Cleaver didn't even know most of these guys, but they were our comrades. But Odinga says that even their role was overstated. You know, the, the BLA was really on their own. Quote, 
Outside of an advisory role, we had no role. I made suggestions, sure, but they were not listening to what I said. They made their own decisions. I was not leading anything. As far as I know, no one person was leading anything. I kept telling them, go slow, organize, get yourselves together. But once Webb, the former West Coast Panther whose murder initiated the whole thing, got killed, things got out of control. Lumumba and Zaid, two leaders, one in Algiers, the other in NYC, they're trying to control things, but they can't. I said, slow down, I'm going to come help. And they said, nah, it's too late for that. Things just got too crazy. End quote. So by July of 71, 50 or 60 of these guys, well, men and women to be fair, mostly men obviously, but uh, had gone underground, primarily in two cells in Brooklyn and another in the Bronx. Supporting that many people off the grid takes money, and money was a constant problem for the BLA while it operated. You know, They didn't have the wealthy above-ground supporters like the Weathermen did. And so they stepped up the pace of drug robberies. They start knocking over clubs and banks. The robberies themselves are risky, though. You know, drug dealers and security guards shoot back, and each one of these brought the possibility of police showing up. Soon, Black Liberation Army guys are being arrested one by one, picked off. And before long, many of them make the decision to leave New York City and set up somewhere else. Some go to San Francisco, they go to Chattanooga, New Orleans, Atlanta. In Atlanta, 17 BLA members rent a large house and set up a makeshift training camp. Asada Shakur trains people in first aid there. They're learning maintenance, care, and proper handling of their guns. They learn to make maps and use compasses and practice robbery scenarios. They're, they're, they're learning wilderness survival skills, which, you know, these guys are from the inner city. A lot of them don't know anything about that. When they need cars, they steal them. You know, they hadn't just fled from New York to hide from the NYPD. They were, they were still operating. A few Panthers took some shots at a cop in San Francisco, but they missed and they were captured. Two members of the Atlanta cell were tasked pretty soon with assassinating a random cop in Atlanta, and on November 3, 1971, they went into town and killed Officer James Green. Four days after that, three more members went hunting again in Atlanta, but before they could get off, a cop saw them with their guns in their car, and they were all arrested. And so most of the Atlanta cell transferred over to Chattanooga, Tennessee. Others decided to head back to New York, but on the way, one of the cars was stopped by a sheriff's deputy in North Carolina. A bunch of them opened fire, and the deputy was left paralyzed. Another four members were arrested, though. Uh, They're just going off the board, one at a time, two at a time, four at a time. Some more of them decided to go down to Florida to regroup, where they robbed a bank and a gun store. And they had a run-in with police at a hotel near the end of 1971, which ended with two more of them arrested and another dead. Now, the BLA was an organization, but it was not very organized. They were fierce, but they did not have the skills or the connections necessary to survive very long. Not when you're going to be killing cops. I mean, when you're just going to bring down the wrath of God on your head. By the end of 1971, they're scattered all over the eastern U.S., mostly. Hardly in contact with anyone other than their immediate running partners spending more time planning and executing robberies to keep themselves fed and sheltered than planning a revolution. But they kept killing cops. Bro, quote, The night of January 27, 1972 was freezing. Frigid winter winds whistled down the garbage-strewn streets of New York's East Village. Snow was on the way down. 
Down on Avenue B, two young patrolmen were walking their beat. Greg Foster, who was 22, was black. Rocco Lori, a year older, was white. The two had served together as Marines in Vietnam and, as close friends, had received permission to be partners, patrolling one of New York's most dangerous and drug-ridden neighborhoods. The two were walking south along Avenue B around 10.30 when they noticed a car parked in front of a hydrant. They ducked into a luncheonette across the street, the shrimp boat, and asked the owner if he knew the car. He stepped outside and shook his head no. Satisfied, Foster and Lori turned and began to walk back north. As they did, three black men passed, parting to allow the officers to walk between them. One of the men wore a long black coat, another a green fatigue jacket and a black Australian-style bush hat. A moment after the officers passed, the three men suddenly turned and drew pistols, a thirty-eight automatic and two nine-millimeter automatics. Foster and Laurie were a few strides away when the men began firing directly into their backs. Foster was hit eight times and fell into a heap on the icy pavement. Six bullets hit Lori. All but one struck his arms and legs, and the last one pierced his neck, and he staggered forward, clutching at his throat before dropping to his knees and falling slowly onto his side. As the two men lay dying, their assassins marched calmly toward them. A witness later claimed one of the shooters hollered, Shoot him in the balls! And all three again opened fire. Three bullets were fired directly into Foster's eyes. Two were shot into Lori's groin. When both men lay still, two of the assassins reached down and wrenched loose their pistols. They ran toward a waiting Chrysler, while the third man, apparently intoxicated by the moment, reportedly danced a jig over the dead men's bodies, firing his pistol into the air Wild West style. Startled to be left behind, he ran off alone, disappearing into the night. The whine of police sirens echoed within minutes, and the first several officers to respond, all answering a disturbance call two blocks away, were quickly on the scene. What they found was stomach-churning. Greg Foster's head had been destroyed. A sludge of blood and brain matter formed a three-foot puddle around his corpse. Rocco Lori had been shot to pieces, bullet wounds up and down his body. End quote. These killings, the killings of officers Foster and Lori, brought the known total of straight-up assassinations to the, the number up to 10 in the last nine months. Despite the mayor's orders to keep the existence of the Black Liberation Army on the down low, the police had had enough, and they finally went public with what they said was a conspiracy against them, and not just random acts of violence. On February 17th, the cover headline of the New York Times read, Evidence of Liberation Army Said to Rise. The BLA continued to inspire robberies and murders as black militants as well as ordinary criminals who needed a reason and support from the underground continued to kill in its name. Some people have the body count, some people who have studied it and looked into it have the body count into the 30s before the NYPD managed to hunt down and kill the last of the original BLA members late the next year. Well, Jim Jones was a daily reader of the New York Times. He saw that headline. He knew about the Panther Civil War, and he saw the call to arms in Cleaver's quarterly magazine, too. He talked to his people about it, and he got reports on what they were talking about among themselves. 
His younger followers were especially turned on by this idea of armed revolution, especially as paranoia gripped the church more and more and became an increasing focus of Jim's public sermons. Jim eventually sided with Huey Newton over Eldridge Cleaver once it became clear that Cleaver was off the rails, but he, he echoed Cleaver's talk about blacks being put in concentration camps, things like that in his own prophecies. Now, sister, you come to get healed, or see healing, but you can't get healed until you hear the truth. And you just won't sit down long enough. Look at If you would sit up here like we sit up here and look at this audience, you would know why America is headed for concentration camps. Right now they're preparing to set up a dictatorship. It's already written into law that will give the president power to move people wherever he wants to, to put them in concentration camps, to take over every streetcar line, over every transportation, over every farm, over every office, over every factory. The Ku Klux Klan's formed alliance with the Nazis and the White Citizen Council, and they're circulating hate literature all through the towns to scare the goddamn people, every city in America, state in America, saying that blacks are planning to uh, kill off white people, and they've got an Uncle Tom group that was set up to do it, but even the Grand Dragon admitted uh, Imperial Wizard, uh, whatever his damn idiot name is, Duke, I think. Those who are unemployed, how many heard what I spoke last night on mutation of genes? DNA, recombinant uh, experimentation. They're going to experiment to make a certain type of human species who will not be able to think and only do physical work. They're messing with the genes. In the same process of doing this, they can create viruses that will kill the whole of the United States because they don't want the hell to do them. They're altering lifestyle. There's a plan called Garden Plot. There's a plan called Cable, Cable Spicer. There's a plan called King Alfred Plan that has not only concentration camps in store for we who are black, but the absolute annihilation. There's not a scientist that gives a chance for the United States to last 14 years. Just turn around and watch for the next five minutes and you'll see what I'm talking about. C cybernetics. Mutations created by messing with genes now. Do you realize that most welfare mothers throughout the South and the Southwest that are black or Mexican get sterilized before they get their welfare? He'll put serial numbers and a mark of the beast right on you. You'll not be any more a person, you'll be a number. And every black and brown and poor white will be done away with. It's already in law. As I've said repeatedly, we have no choices but fascism or communism. For apocalyptic revolutionaries who had long sought a constituency to rise up and fight alongside them, black inmates seemed to represent the Holy Grail. Weathermen, after all, had invested thousands of hours attempting to rally working-class youth, high school students, and black liberals, and had earned little in return but snickers and shrugs. Finally, in California's toughest prisons, radicals found what appeared to be a loyal following. By 1968, black inmates were reported to be forming clandestine chapters of the Black Panthers in a hardcore Marxist group called the Black Guerrilla Family, both of which operated extensive secret Marxist political education groups, including courses on revolutionary theory and bomb-making. In 1971, a House subcommittee identified the most popular books requested by black inmates as The Autobiography of Malcolm X, H. Rap Brown's Die, Nigger, Die, and Cleaver's Soul on Ice. It was Cleaver, starting in 1968, who loudly and repeatedly began predicting that black inmates would soon rise up and form the leading edge of the revolution. 
This kind of talk produced something approaching rapture in a certain brand of white revolutionary, to the point that, in a phenomenon the author Eric Cummins terms convict cultism, by the early 70s, convicts who were released from California prisons frequently enjoyed instant hero status in radical organizations. As a movement radical named Betsy Carr put it, I was completely fascinated with black inmates. The glamour, the bizarreness. It was my Hollywood. I'd never discussed anything with any of them, just watched in total awe. More than a few of the black inmates they befriended, however, turned out to be opportunists, who parroted Marxist philosophy in hopes of luring their new white friends into helping them make parole or, in extreme cases, escape. The classic case came in October 1972, when several members of Venceremos, a leading Bay Area activist group, ambushed a car transporting a black prisoner named Ronald Beatty outside Chino's California Institute for Men. A guard was killed in the ensuing gunfight. Their plan, authorities learned later, was to form guerrilla training camps in, in the California mountains, from which they would launch the long-awaited revolution in American cities. These hopes were dashed, however, when Beatty was recaptured. He not only implicated much of the Venceremos' leadership, he also said he had only pretended to be a revolutionary to gain his freedom. End quote. Now, Jim's young followers were eating this stuff up. You know, they were in this environment, and especially the ones in the college, uh, in the college dorms. They fantasized about what they were going to do when the time came, when, when the day came that they were going to have to defend themselves and their loved ones against the U.S. government. Many of them saw no reason to wait for the enemy to come to them. Young people around the world were acting now. In Germany, with the Red Army Fraction, better known as the Bader-Meinhof Gang. In Italy, with the Red Brigades. In Uruguay, with the Tupamaros. And in the U.S., with the Black Liberation Army. So why not them? They read everything they could get their hands on from prison authors like Eldridge and George Jackson. George Jackson was the most well-known and most revered of the California prison authors from this period. His family had moved from Chicago to Watts in the year of the Watts riots, 1965, when Jackson was 14. He was extremely violent, very angry, even as a child, and had begun mugging people by the time he was 12, according to uh, his, his own account. He was locked up for burglary a year after arriving in California, but escaped the youth facility they put him in, and he fled back to Chicago. He was captured again after knifing a guy there and got sent back to L.A., where he escaped again and was recaptured again. He got paroled, but as soon as he got out, he stuck up a gas station in Bakersfield for 70 bucks, pled guilty to that, and so the creative judge sentenced him to one year to life in prison, so that the length of his stay was basically entirely dependent on his own good behavior. He was 19, and he never left prison again. In prison, George Jackson was an extremely aggressive, feared, ultra-violent inmate. He received almost 50 disciplinary infractions in the 10 years he served before finally checking out. It's like one every 10 weeks. Burrow has a great section on Jackson. Quote, At his first stop, he and his friend, James Carr, best known for burning down his elementary school at the age of nine, worked as muscle for Mexican gangs, then branched out into loan sharking and homosexual pimping. Jackson was investigated for a murder, as he would be several times, but nothing came of it. Transferred to San Quentin, Jackson, by then a chiseled six-footer, it was said that he performed a thousand fingertip push-ups every morning, joined the Black Capone Gang, 
where he established himself as a feared debt collector, so adept at threatening other inmates that he took to buying debts from other prisoners to collect himself. He was angry, sullen, erasable, and legendarily mean-spirited. He was the meanest mother I ever saw, inside or out, a white prisoner once recalled. You want to know why he was what dumbass people call a prison leader? Because everyone was shit scared of him. I mean, he was into everything when I was inside. Dope, booze, peddling ass, you name it. Strong arm, hitman. John Irwin, a board member of the United Prisoners Union, Union recalled, We hated his guts. He was a mean, rotten son of a bitch. He was a bully, an unscrupulous bully. The stories of Jackson's prowess as a prison fighter, especially after he began studying martial arts, are legion. The time he was seen swinging a length of pipe during a riot in 1967. The times he took his pals into the showers and, just for the fun of it, screamed, Attack! and began beating the other inmates bloody. He was pound for pound the toughest guy I ever knew, an inmate named Johnny Spain recalled. No doubt part of Jackson's anger, anger arose from his 1965 parole review, where his own father testified that his son was better off in prison. End quote. And so George Jackson's in, in lockup, and his rise to fame begins in 1970, when he's being held at Soledad Prison. In Soledad at the time, black and white prisoners had been beefing for a while, actually across the California prison system at the time. And so one day a fist fight between black and white prisoners breaks out in the yard. One of the guards in the tower, a white guy, with no whistle or warning shots or anything like that, aims his rifle and fires four shots all at the black prisoners, kills three of them. His supervisor testified that the guard, he openly admitted the guard had been trying to protect the white prisoners. All through the California prison system, the word went out that there would have to be revenge by the black prisoners against the guards. One day, George Jackson and a few other inmates caught this young guard, new guy, out of position on a third floor cell block, beat the hell out of him, and threw him over the rail to the ground below, where he died to the sounds of cheers coming from every cell. Jackson and two others were charged with the murder. A key figure in their defense was a radical female attorney named Faye Stender, who had already represented Huey Newton in his mur murder trial earlier. And more than almost anyone, this, this attorney, Faye Stender, understood how the new fusion of the media and the legal system worked, and she was a genius at manipulating it. She portrayed Jackson as this put-upon revolutionary who had only attracted the hostility of the penal system for his ideas, not for anything that he had actually done. She collected letters that he had written to friends and family and gave them over to a good editor who took an axe to him and then published those in a book called Soledad Brother. It was a massive bestseller and received worshipful reviews in the national press. The New York Times called it one of the most significant and important documents since the first black was pushed off the ship at Jamestown Colony. And so Faye Stender creates an advisory council made up of white radicals called the Soledad Brothers Defense Committee, which blows up into a whole bureaucracy with seven subcommittees and countless radical celebrities like Jane Fonda, Pete Seeger, Allen Ginsberg, Tom Hayden on its roster. And they use their clout to turn George Jackson into a folk hero and his defense into another national referendum on the system as a whole. Burrow reports that there were bumper stickers, posters, buttons, 
fundraisers, which included bake sales and poetry readings, art auctions, even a Grateful Dead benefit concert. Stender wasn't just an opportunist. She was a true believer. She worshipped the black inmates, not just politically. The woman had a husband and two kids, but she carried on an affair with Huey Newton while she was representing him, and she did the same thing with George Jackson during his trial. Burrow, quote, Under Stender's guidance, George Jackson emerged as a living symbol of everything the Bay Area left yearn for. Strong, black, prideful, masculine, and undeniably sexual. John Irwin, who was called to testify for Jackson's defense, noticed how naive and starstruck Stender and her supporters were. It was mostly the women who were doing the organizing, he remembered years later. They had each picked their favorite Soledad brother and were kind of ooing and eyeing over them, like teenage, teenagers with movie stars. I couldn't believe it. A New York radical named Gregory Armstrong met Jackson and summarized his appeal this way. Everything about him is flashing and shining and glistening, and his body seems to ripple like a cat's. As he moves forward to take my hand, I literally feel myself being pulled into the vortex of his energy. There's no way I can look away. He gives me a sudden, radiant smile of sheer, sensual delight, the kind of smile you save for someone you really love. As we take each other's hands, I have a sense of becoming almost a part of his very being. End quote. One of the people who was pulled into the vortex of George Jackson's energy was his younger brother, Jonathan. Jonathan Jackson was a good student at a Pasadena high school when he became intoxicated by his brother's celebrity and revolutionary rhetoric. So he was assigned by George to be the bodyguard for one of George's famous supporters, the activist and UCLA professor Angela Davis. Angela Davis bought Jonathan Jackson a 380 semi-automatic handgun and, after a long talk with George Jackson at the prison, a shotgun to go along with it. On August 7th, 1970, Jonathan Jackson, who had just turned 17 years old earlier that summer, walked into the Marin County Courthouse where one of his brother's friends from San Quentin was on trial for stabbing a guard and two others, two other inmates had been called as witnesses. Jonathan Jackson stood up at a certain point, cocked the shotgun and said, all right, gentlemen, I'm taking over now. He pulled out several more guns and gave them to the inmates, to the prisoners, and ordered the judge to step forward. He pulls out a roll of tape, and he tapes the shotgun tight under the judge's chin, and then he and the three inmates walked outside with a prosecutor and three female jurors as hostages. As they left, one of them yelled, Free or release the Soledad brothers by 1230, or they all die. And so they all pile into a van, but... At barely over 16 years old, Jonathan Jackson doesn't know how to get it started or in gear, so they stall for a few minutes until another inmate switches places with him to get it going. By then, the cops are everywhere. The whole place is surrounded. So Jonathan gets back into the driver's seat and tries to drive off, but from somewhere, either in the van or from the police, I'm not clear on that, a shot was fired and the cops just light up the van. Jonathan Jackson Once they start shooting, Jonathan Jackson turns around and pulls the trigger on the shotgun and blows the judge's face off. Once the shooting is stopped, Jonathan Jackson was dead and two of the other inmates were dead. The third inmate and the prosecutor were in the van. They were both critically wounded. Jonathan Jackson was given a Black Panther funeral 
and he became a revered martyr among Bay Area radicals, especially young ones in, in, in the university students. Angela Davis was charged for her role in the plot, but, you know, there's no law against buying a gun for someone and no one was left alive to testify against her. So prosecutors couldn't prove that she was actually involved with the conspiracy. Angela Davis became a left wing icon. She still is one today. Uh, she pivoted later from focusing so much on racial and prison work to advocating more for communism and for communist regimes like the USSR, Cuba and East Germany as time went on. Um, after her trial, she was hired to teach at Claremont, where the college arranged to have her teach in secret and to make all of her students swear to secrecy to hide from alumni that she was teaching communist doctrine to her students. That actually remained a feature of her classes throughout her career, even after people stopped caring about college professors teaching communism to students just because it added to her mystique. She retired from UC Santa Cruz just a few years back, actually. So Angela Davis, actually, another thing, this will come into play later as well, she became a close friend and collaborator of Jim Jones in People's Temple in the 1970s. She would come to services and give talks, have private meetings with Jim. Jim Jones would develop working relationships with a lot of radicals and political leaders over the years. People like Davis, Huey Newton. He had some of uh, Newton's cousins in the church, and he knew Newton personally, met with him a lot. Um... He was very close to the leader of the American Indian movement, Dennis Banks. Very close, very, very close with Harvey Milk. We'll talk about that a little later. I mean, Harvey Milk, if he was not a member of People's Temple, I mean, he was about as close as you could get without, without officially being so. And so these relationships did more than probably anything to increase and maintain Jim's credibility among his people. You know, his people were the type who worshipped these figures. And their pastor, Jim Jones, would speak to them on the phone on a regular basis. You know, these people would come to your church and speak to you and, and offer Jim their support and respect. It just did a huge amount for his prestige and credibility within his movement. And the type of people that made up Jim's congregation, it gave him more clout than having movie stars or pro athletes show up. But Jim had to walk a fine line. Now, he felt certain that he was under surveillance by the authorities, and he worried that they were going to use any talk of violence by his people against him and against the movement. But he took the talk seriously at the same time. He wanted to be accepted. He didn't want to get in trouble for something like that. But he also wanted to be known as like a big revolutionary. And so he let, them, he let the people in the movement, in the temple, who wanted to participate in that kind of thing, have their say. And it started to become a debate within the church. And, and things started to get heated, actually, especially behind the scenes as people argued over which direction to take. And got especially heated after George Jackson was killed in August of 1971. And then after a book he had written was published in early 72. One year after his brother Jonathan was killed, one of George Jackson's lawyers, authorities could never pin it on a specific person, so whoever it was got away with it, uh, managed to smuggle him a gun in prison. And so George Jackson used it to take over a cell block at San Quentin, and he took six guards and two white prisoners hostage. As negotiators are trying to talk him out, He's just shouting back curses and, and over and over screaming that the dragon has come. The dragon has come. Finally, George took off into the yard and a sniper put him down with one bullet to the back. But before he'd run out, he killed six of his hostages by cutting their throats. There 2,000 people showed up for George Jackson's funeral in Oakland. 
his armed black panthers line the church inside and out under you know kind of paranoid suspicion that government forces were going to try to attack the place weathermen detonated two bombs in his honor one in san francisco one in sacramento uh while the funeral was going on kind of as a show of solidarity his last book his, his posthumous book was called blood in my eye and he had written it from solitary confinement after his brother had been killed and while he was awaiting trial for murder in the Soledad brothers case i, I haven't read this one myself uh, i read his first one but i haven't read this one uh, but burrow describes it quote it is an amazing document a straightforward call for a bloody black-led revolution in the streets of America and a vivid testimony to how thoroughly he had internalized everything he had read in Debray and other revolutionary sources. Later, friends would come forward to say how totally he had lost touch with reality in his last year. Jackson wrote, and now quoting from Jackson's book, We must accept the eventuality of bringing the USA to its knees, accept the closing off of critical sections of the city with barbed wire, Armored pig carriers crisscrossing the streets, soldiers everywhere, Tommy guns pointed at stomach level, smoke curling black against the daylight sky, the smell of cordite, house-to-house searches, doors being kicked in, the commonness of death. End quote. Now, Blood in My Eye didn't get the same play in the mainstream that Jackson's first book, Soledad Brother, did, but it was read ravenously in the radical subculture. Jim Jones read it. And he played George Jackson up as a hero and martyr in his services. His people read it, and many of them wanted to follow George Jackson's example. In the end, though, Jim Jones himself laid down the law. He overruled the use of violence by members of People's Temple. It was in 1972 he made the final decision on the matter. He, he said that although revolutionary violence was justified and the BLA and George Jackson, these people were heroes, that everybody had had a role to play. You know, they, they, they had to do everything that they could to help those who were engaged in armed struggle where it was appropriate. But the People's Temple just had too many children, too many senior citizens to worry about to engage in that kind of action. Many of the young people did not like the decision, but once it was made, Jim Jones tolerated no dissent. About, about George Jackson, that when they when they isolate him, that only way don't he survived. Don't you dirty the name of George Jackson. Yeah. Don't don't you dirty the name of George Jackson. If George Jackson had had this movement, he'd be alive. Don't you dirty his name. You're not worthy of his goddamn name. Don't you speak his name, you prick. Don't you mention it, because this organization will save George Jackson. It's pricks like you that sold him down the river that caused him to be dead. You're not a George Jackson. You're a punk. You goddamn miserable punks, you gangsters that want to identify with George Jackson. And if he'd had some of you miserable punks working with him, he wouldn't have been killed by the pigs. If he'd had this organization, he talked about it. You haven't read his books. He talked about this kind of organization we have. You miserable goddamn punk. Don't you ever dirty his name again until you can learn to cooperate and follow rules, you miserable punk. Huh? You, you're, you're Punks so like you killed George Jackson. Don't you think you ought to make up for it? Yes, Dad. I didn't say I was trying to be like George Jackson. You didn't have to say you don't like him. You quoted him. You quoted him, and you're not worthy of quoting him. Do you want to be like him? That ain't the question. Do you want to be like him? 
you know, I know what I really want to be like, but I know I ain't gonna never be there. It's like that, so you know. Well, that ain't what you say, motherfucker. That kick the shit out of any fucking one of us, and uh, as many at a time as he wants. And you don't see him walking around doing it. So tell me you want to be like him, all right? He's lying. He's lying. This morning I asked him the very same goddamn question, and he said he wanted to be like Chaco Bar. The saying a revel. I mean. And also, and also, when we tried it, we, we tried to explain to him that he tried to, he should try to father follow father's example. He said, "I couldn't do that in a thousand lifetimes." Look, Willie, I remember well what you said about father a few months ago. Father bleeds, father bleeds, father bleeds. And I remember what you said yesterday morning. You said, "Father, you're hostile against father and against me." Don't look. Look, all your words of manipulation don't convince me one bit. You're a goddamn liar. And also, and also this morning when Mother was talking to him, it was nothing but just pure hostility on his face. He had nothing but a glare in his eyes. Hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. Jim Jones played both sides as best he could. He played himself up as the most radical of the radicals while trying to keep his people from spilling out into the rest of the world in ways that might come back on him or the temple. But there's only so much you can do. You can only ride that line for so long in a heated environment, especially since, you know, it's not like Jim was just play acting himself. His people were paranoid and they were radical, but he was more paranoid than any of them. It was inevitable that his people were eventually going to start bumping up against the people and the world that he was telling them, had been telling them for years, was out for their blood. Once in January 1973, he and a bunch of temple members were down at their Los Angeles location for services, and an elderly black parishioner fainted and was feeling sick, and since her condition was real and therefore not subject to his healing powers, someone called an ambulance. And so the medics come and start loading the woman up and temple security are watching this go down. Many of them in their uniforms with guns on their hips. And so inside the ambulance, the medics have the woman sit down on a bench instead of lie down on the gurney. And when they do that, one of the temple security guys starts demanding that they let her lie down. And the medics just close the door to the ambulance, but the temple people open it back up. The medic closes it again and they get into a tug of war with the temple people over the door and they start shouting and arguing, and the temple people are accusing the medics of being racist toward the old woman. And so the medics call for backup, saying that they've got armed men here trying to obstruct their medical work. Two, as soon as they do that, two of the temple security guys jump on the medics, who start defending themselves. And a scuffle is still going on when the cops arrive. The cops see a bunch of random people attacking the ambulance people when they get there. So they charge in with their batons and temple members are fighting with the cops. More cops show up and there's a helicopter circling over. It was practically a riot. Right at that moment, Jim Jones comes out and orders his followers to all drop to their knees immediately. And they just hit the ground in an instant. Mike Prokes and the two security guys were arrested. Jim and Marceline went down to the police station to talk to the cops, but the cops were the cops were not interested. They were adamant. They were angry. And so Jim grabs one of them by the arm and says, if you're going to arrest anyone, arrest me. And so they do for a bit, but there's nothing really there. So they let him go. If things like this happen, 
and you and I hear about them as an outsider, and it all seems pretty straightforward. You know, the temple people were out of line. The medics and the police basically acted appropriately. But it's hard to get inside the heads of people who are viewing things through a paranoid lens. Go read Stefan Aus' book about the Bader-Meinhof gang in Germany. Or you can actually just watch the movie. It's it's the book is better. Uh, you know, it's more detail, obviously. But go watch the movie, uh, the Bader-Meinhof complex. It, it's a, it's a good representation of the nonfiction book. And one of the things that just hits you again and again is how the people he's talking about, the members of Bader-Meinhof, are really they're operating kind of in their own reality in a lot of ways. And I don't mean that as if they're psychotically delusional, like, you know, they, where they think their dog is telling them to go do this stuff. Not, nothing so dramatic as that. Although Botter, Andreas Botter, probably was psychotic in, you know, come to think of it, the group did recruit a lot of its members from a movement called the Socialist Patients Collective, which was organized by some radical psychiatrists and made up entirely of mental patients. But I just mean that you had this group, the Botter-Meinhof gang, this radical communist terrorist group, in Germany back in the 70s. And they're running around doing prison breaks, blowing things up, kidnapping people, murdering dozens of people. And yet there'd be these scenes where the police would find one of them on the street and the person would just pull a gun and start firing wildly at them in daytime traffic. And so the police would fire back and kill the shooter. And then afterwards, the other members would get together and there's just no recognition of their role in what had happened. They would just rant and fume about how the fascist police had viciously assassinated their martyred comrade. And they were serious about it. It wasn't in bad faith. You know, their idea was that they were essentially living under a reincarnation of the Nazi regime. And any kind of resistance to that regime and those complicit with it is legitimate and obligatory. And so whatever they did, to resist it was right. And if the police found you, it doesn't matter what you had done or what you did to defend yourself. They're the bad guys. They're hunting you. And you were merely acting in legitimate self-defense. It didn't matter that you shot first or were shooting in traffic or that they were after you for kidnapping or murdering a random civilian. That's how they saw things. When one of their imprisoned cadres went on a hunger strike, the fascists were to blame for letting him starve. When the prison authorities said okay and put a tube down his throat and forced him to eat, the fascists were abusing his human right to protest. And again, they weren't being disingenuous about it. It's just this is really how they saw things. And when incidents like the one I just described with the ambulance and the cops in Los Angeles happened, People's Temple had a very similar experience and way of looking at things. They had had a run-in with the armed agents of this fascist state. That's how they saw it. There was no discussion to be had of who was to blame. The fascists were to blame. What, what kind of question is that to even discuss? And so every one of these incidents, small and large, no matter what happened, it just pushed their mentality in one direction, one direction only. It was just more evidence, as if they needed any more evidence, that they were being targeted and harassed by this oppressive system that would stop at nothing and never let them live in peace. Jim had another run-in with the Los Angeles police at the end of the same year. This time he was by himself. One afternoon in December, he was at a movie theater near MacArthur Park, which at the time was a known hangout and meeting place for homosexuals in L.A. 
and people were reporting that there was funny business going on in some of the public bathrooms and that random people who were just trying to use the toilet were being propositioned and harassed. And so the cops set up an undercover sting operation to catch people in the act. So Jim Jones is in the back of a movie theater watching the Clint Eastwood movie Dirty Harry, and he falls into the trap. He motions to one of the undercover cops with his hand to come back to where he's sitting in the theater. And the cop ignores him and instead goes into the bathroom to check on things. And the cop's washing his hands when Jim Jones walks into the bathroom behind him and goes into one of the stalls. And then a few seconds later, Jim comes out of the stall with his pants undone, exposed and rubbing himself, walking toward the cop. That was enough for a lewd conduct charge, and so Jim was arrested. Thanks to his lawyer, Tim Stone, and help from his growing list of political and community supporters in San Francisco and Los Angeles, Jim managed to get out of the charge to the outrage of the LAPD. They, they still remembered him from the January incident with the ambulance. The judge overseeing the lewd conduct case actually ordered the record of the incident destroyed completely for reasons that nobody's ever really been able to figure out. And over the protest of the, the chief of police in L.A. and the L.A. prosecutor's office, very strange incident. So if you can't tell, his behavior is becoming more erratic by this point, more impulsive. You would think that someone as paranoid as Jim Jones would be doing everything possible to avoid a situation like that. But th on the other hand, you just have to look at how it turned out. It worked out in the end. Everything always seemed to turn out his way in the end. It seemed like he'd get away with anything. You know, day in, day out, he's surrounded by people who thought he was a living god, and you get used to people never telling you no. This subject uh, of homosexuality in particular was one about which Jim showed extreme ambivalence. He would humiliate male members by making them confess homosexual urges to the group, often in front of their wives and children. The author, Daniel Flynn, described a meeting where, quote, Jones charged an astonished follower with hectoring the leader to mount him sexually, despite the need of a proper cleansing. And now he's, he's quoting Jones. That person who begged me to do something that I find completely foreign to my own natural desires should at least have taken an enema before he came to me. A former member named Jeannie Mills reported a scene in which Jim accused another male follower of having come to him with a disgusting rash. This is quoting Mills. Jim told Oscar to pull his shorts down and spread his buttocks so the counselors assembled in the room could inspect the area and see if it was clean. Obediently, in front of nearly 100 people, Oscar did as he was told. Most of the women in the room didn't raise their eyes from the floor, but several men were ordered to inspect Oscar. The men commented that they didn't see any indication of a rash. Jim still swore that the rash had been there and made Oscar promise to go to a doctor. End quote. And yet, at other times, he would speak with a great deal of compassion for gay people and with sympathy for homosexuality in general. Other women aren't gay, but are more free to explore their own feelings and make their own decisions because a man is never honest or open with a woman. There's still strong pressure against homosexuality, but not as severe as in the men's prisons. Listen to the yard of the men's prison where I was. Almost all the jokes are about men making it with men. You're a fucking faggot. Oh, yeah, well, you take it in the ass. Yeah, well, you suck cock and you know it. 
Hundreds of men thrown together by the system, sometimes for years and years at a stretch. And the worst insult they can throw at someone is that he might want to make love with another man. Worse, look at the homosexuality the brothers do allow. The sickest goddamn kind. Where one man brutalizes and exploits another. One man plays the role of the man. The other, usually younger, smaller, less hairy, more boyish looking, plays the role of the kid. The kid is the slave. The stereotype of how most sick men perceive women. The man, afraid he will be considered a fag if he acts like he really likes the kid, comes on. Yeah, I fuck him in the ass. He sucks me off. He does all kinds of shit for me. And I let him hang around. The man would never admit we just couldn't to having any feelings for the kid. He would never admit to giving anything sexually. Just taking. And the kid, in order to justify himself, plays the role of the woman in America, caca, always black people with pride, right America, A-M-E-E-R-I-K-K-A. In order to justify himself, he plays the role of the woman in America, the kid does, taking the man for all he's worth, getting food and drugs and presents from the man and threatening to leave for another man if this man doesn't provide enough goodies. And under all this sick play acting, often the two men like each other deeply down deep but are so frightened by the system the prisoners have set up that they have to prevent, pretend they are using each other. Why do prisoners approve when one man boasts of abusing and exploiting another man but get totally threatened when two men just say they really dig each other? Sex increasingly became an obsession of the late-night planning commission meetings. On any given night... They'd alternate between catharsis sessions and talking about sex, often with one leading into the other. They'd stay up all night in these meetings. Many of the high-level staff members hopped up on speed, taking turns praising Jim's sexual prowess or listening to him brag. They'd accuse each other of having unauthorized sex. Other than with Jim, sex was still considered selfish and therefore counter-revolutionary in the temple, and so it was officially forbidden. Jim's sex partners, male and female, were legion by this point. One of his most loyal followers was this great big fat woman from Indiana named Patty Cartmel. And she, did, she did anything Jim asked. She worshipped Jim Jones. When he needed a really dirty trick pulled, it was often Patty Cartmel that he entrusted it to. But Jim was not interested in having sex with Patty Cartmel, so he involved her in another way. He put her in charge of keeping his sexual schedule. If one of his partners, other than the handful of permanent mistresses very close to him, wanted his special attention, they were to go through Patty Cartmel, who would pencil them into the schedule and keep track of whose turn it was. You better prove something to me, man. You better prove to me. What did you tell her? You better prove, because we, we got ways to know. You better tell me what you were talking to, sweet shit. Because we're in a land of emergency. I was telling her how, how, how bad I felt about uh, taking advantage of her. Uh, well, let's hear what you said. Then, uh, then I'll ask for the, the what you really meant. And... You know how I was feeling guilty because I know I, um, she's she's a really beautiful sister and she's um. Now tell us what you really meant. 
And you better talk straight because I consider you right now a class enemy. All the people that have destroyed our young people, the CIA transporting the drugs that I gave you news right from Columbia. You goddamn people that won't look at your minds. If I hadn't looked at mine, where in the hell would this place be? Don't try no fucking games on me. What you were trying to do was to come on with a babyfied talk and little boy play game and say, I'm sorry, so she won't go with that doctor and you get back in her nookie. Was that not right, sir? Is that not what you were really trying to get done? That's true, Dad. Sweetie. You said the only reason he was talking all that bunk to me is because he was trying to get me to not go with Dr. Shack and so he could get up my pussy. That's all. It's the same line. It's a line you hear all over this place. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to hurt you. Just so I can get you cool down, because you consider the woman an emotional animal. And if you, you get her under control, get her all cooled down, so you can fuck the next time she goes down. I know you pricks. Love, I'll tell you, sweet, you don't listen. You goddamn people get your twat going, and it gets itchy, and the dick gets itchy, and you don't give a shit who you're laying up to. They can be a goddamn snake, and you still lay up next to them. Going out. I wasn't I wasn't even beginning to think about crying over myself, but just now in a moment it hits me. I don't know what the fuck it is all about. What the fuck we what 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 the fuck some of us beating our asses off night and day and you people won't even rise above your vaginas and your dicks. Mm, assholes who can't even fuck. I could fuck fifteen times a day and I gotta worry about all this shit. And not everybody liked this, as you can imagine especially the people who were ready for the revolution. And they didn't blame Jim Jones, though. They blamed the men and women he was sleeping with for being selfish. In 1973, before the incident at the movie theater, just, just a few months before that, eight of them, all young people, had had enough, and they left People's Temple. Many of them were prominent members, including grown children of families that had come from Indiana. And they left a letter explaining why they had gone and it's worth reading in full because it's very interesting. It provides a lot of insight into the temple. This group called themselves the Eight Revolutionaries. And this was their letter to Jim Jones. Quote, Jim, it's the purpose of this letter to explain why the, fo why the following eight of us quit People's Temple. And it lists their names. To put it in one word, staff. Again, staff was the inner, inner circle mostly made up of white women who were Jim's sexual partners. They had come to dominate more and more of the temple's decision-making process behind the scenes. And back to the letter. The fact is, the eight of us have seen a grotesque amount of sickness displayed by staff. The ridiculous double standard and dishonesty that's practiced does not agree with us. Before we explain ourselves further, let us say that our departure has nothing to do with you. To us... You are the finest socialist and leader this earth has ever seen. We plan to contact you and, if you see fit, work with you, not staff. We have nothing to say to or with staff. Proceeding, a revolutionary as you and staff would say does not engage in sex. Anyone with any awareness concerning socialism would give up sex. The reasons for giving up sex are agreeable with us. However, who takes the privileged liberty to abuse such a decision? Staff. 
Carolyn Layton, Sandy Ingram, Karen Layton, Grace Stone, Janet Phillips, etc., has to be fucked in order to be loyal. Jack Beam Sr., Tim Stone, the name of a survivor who's had their name redacted, Mike Prokes, etc., has to be fucked in the butt for the same reason. Who has to do it to them but Jim Jones? The thought of demanding your sensitivity and dedication in such a manner is grossly sick. There are other staff that's taken advantage likewise, however the above is sufficient. One black, potentially solid revolutionary young man by the name of Ted Ballard was seduced by one older white schizophrenic staff, Faith Kais. Ted's image is ruined in the church, and no doubt in his mind he's worthless. Now he walks the fascist streets an outcast. Related to this situation, Dan Pietla tries to follow guidelines set by staff. Leave Robin wages alone, especially sexually. Dan Pietla's one of the people who ran off with the eight revolutionaries. Robin's mother is told lies about Danny in order to make sure Danny doesn't see Robin. To Dan's surprise, he catches Faith Kais screwing Ted. But as always, staff remains out of public range while Ted is condemned, is made to look like a fag and a sexual deviant. What's Dan to think when he witnessed such unfairness? How would anyone feel put in the same situation? Grace Stone, as everyone knows, doesn't know her posterior from a hole in the ground. In order to keep her in people's temple, she's allowed a fuck. Or should we say she had to be fucked? Accidentally, question mark, she becomes pregnant, and contrary to people's temple law, she doesn't get an abortion. As can be expected, she's staff. Why wasn't, name redacted, and Harriet Randolph's sexual deviation talked about in public? The eight of us, the eight of us feel if loyalty has to be achieved through such double standard measures, then loyalty will never be achieved. At most, a temporary secrecy will be kept, not loyalty nor the spirit of socialism. Jim, many times in the past you've said that money didn't talk in the socialist family. Presently, it seems that everyone with money has been put on special projects and staff. It is known in People's Temple that Helen Swinney isn't to be messed with. She brings in a lot of money for the church, so she's left alone, in spite the fact that she's a racist through and through. When Helen meets People's Temple's black members downtown or in public eye, she ignores them. We're not speaking of outside-the-ranks black people. We're speaking of People's Temple black members. We have many testimonies to this fact. These people are both black and white, mainly black. It was staff that said, don't talk about Helen Swinney unless you can bring in as much money. This is a cruel and sick thing to say to poor white and black people that will never have the opportunity Helen had. Two, it has a stinking capitalist overtone with no socialist concern. It's true Helen has a lot of money, does what she wants, and enjoys a condescending capitalist position. Several problems have come to different ones of us with doubts about you, staff, people's temple goals, and money used. Those that have expressed doubts about you felt guilty, worthless, and scared. We told them all to write to you and explain these feelings because we didn't agree and didn't know how to help them. Most of them said, and we quote, staff will only use it against us. To put it mildly, there are many people that hate staff with a passion. You know as well as we, if leadership is dishonest, if leadership is aloof and sacred from the common people, if leadership has a white attitude, a movement will be crippled if not destroyed. From our observation and dealings with People's Temple members, they have faith in you. Only you. You said that the revolutionary focal point at present is in the black people. There is no potential in the white population, according to you. Yet where is the black leadership? Where is the black staff and black attitude? Alice Ingram and Joyce C. Clark? What kind of awareness do they have about socialism? 
No, we didn't forget Archie Imes. He's like the above two, out of date. We'll talk about Lee Ingram later. There's no black people with any discontent for today's evilness that will listen to or follow any one of them. Black people are being tapped for money, practically nothing else. John Brown doesn't know what socialism is. All he's used for is to take offerings. On what grounds is staff chosen? Does it mean anything or warrant respect and camaraderie if a black person proves loyal to People's Temple as long as seven, eight, nine, ten years? There are black people in People's Temple who have proven themselves through the years. Still, they participate in People's Temple from the same capacity as when they joined. On the other hand, there are those who have become members of staff after four, five, six, seven, eight meetings. Mike Prokes, Annie Moore, Terry Buford, Gene Chaikin, etc. are examples. How much do they know about socialism? It's impossible to know what's necessary concerning socialism the way they were introduced to it. How is it justified that, in, that new white people achieve such staff positions? New white upper middle class put in charge of a socialist movement. New white upper middle class folks seem to be trusted and treated better than black folk who have proven their loyalties through the years. There's never been one black person who's come into People's Temple and put on staff right away. I'll skip past a part where they complain about specific individuals that I haven't talked about. How can there be sound trust from black people if there's only white nitpicking staff, hungrily taking advantage of a chance to castrate black men? The staff jumps at such an opportunity because they're perverted and threatened. Staff creates so much guilt in males that it breaks their spirit of revolution, if they have any. The blacks who do take it do so because they think you approve. They think you care. They also think that you will zap them dead if they don't give in. For the sake of information, some are beginning to wonder. Why are there no black men or women with a revolutionary attitude coming into people's temple? For the past six years, all staff have concerned themselves with have been the castrating of people, calling them homosexual, sex, sex, sex. What about socialism? Why isn't it top priority? If you say it is... How does 99.5% of People's Temple manage to know zero about socialism? There's no revolutionary teachings being taught the way it used to. At one time, you told us to read, yet staff came in the night to steal books from those who had them. Why haven't, name redacted's books been, been taken? Tim Stone and other people are told not to read about socialism. Most of us were told this also. Why? Take a look at what the youth group used to be and what it is now. Before, they planned, they were united, and they were aware of capitalism as opposed to socialism. Today, they're dumb when it comes to capitalism and socialism. They hate going all to the church meetings. They don't go to choir rehearsal. There's no youth group. Why? When the college students held socialist meetings, not one young person left the group. There was unity. The college meetings were discontinued. Ever since, the college dorms have been going downhill. Why? To regress a bit, it is our feeling that staff have wiped out progressive and revolutionary thought. People's Temple members are expecting to enter a cave or to go to some isolated part of another country. The bomb falls, they emerge, and pow, paradise. This would never be the state of mind if the realism of supporting and believing socialism were understood. With this, we feel some of us were kept from staff, by staff, because our ideals were and are too progressive and black. Anybody with a mind to be active concerning socialism is put down, called a queer, a big revolutionary in a degrading manner. Why? We know you have far too much on you, and you have to rely on staff for facts, etc. This puts you in a vulnerable position because staff lies and their personal prejudices are given to you instead of a fact. 
We've witnessed it as well as experienced it. How can one judge or be objective about something they fear? The staff being uppity white folk fear blackness. They fear what some of us had to offer. They fear the consequences of a do-it-now philosophy. They fear action. We're told we're not ready. We need more money. We have to be closer. Well, People's Temple is a multi-million dollar church and there's nothing being done to bring people closer. Hugging each other in services will not do it. Male chauvinism is used every other word. When this world is in the condition it's in, why be trivial? Of course male chauvinism exists. However, it's overemphasized. The male population at People's Temple have been saturated with the word and with people that use it. Again, staff is responsible. They set the example. Planning Commission was created to handle emergencies, to plan directions before fascism came, to plan what to do in case you, Jim Jones, was put in prison. What a laugh. All Planning Commission does is call each other homosexual, asking if each other suck cock, planning to plant dope on people like Dan Pietla. What a contribution to socialism. Why be so trivial? The fact is, when Jim Jones is put in prison, staff will not do shit. You will rot and die in prison with no help, support, or action from the staff. It was discussed in one of the staff meetings, if you were killed, it should appear you went away on a mission. This would keep the people happy. What does this mean? It means that nothing will be done about your death. This is similar to what happened to Golden Rule. When their silly-ass lady died, they collapsed. Look at them now. Jim, if you're imprisoned or killed, we guarantee that a few people will not sit still. It was you that made life meaningful. It was you that introduced us to socialism. It's you that's carrying all the weight in this revolution. We're grateful. In closing, let us bring to light one more situation. Jan Wilsey and Christine Lucientes came to People's Temple at the same time. Christine is put on staff, even though she shows more suicidal tendencies, runs away when confronted. Jan is at the doors every meeting doing her job. Christine flunks out of school, gives the church a bad name at Santa Rosa Junior College. Nursing school, however, she's white and makes staff. The eight of us believe in historical materialism. We feel that you came to the people giving them the greatest reason to live, the greatest reason to die, the greatest reason to fight. Socialism. We have another name for it. However, you can't do it all. You can't move unless your followers realize the necessity to shape history themselves. This is again where staff has failed. They are, to the most part, white, egotistical people maintaining a hierarchy, not allowing you to take the reins and go ahead full steam. Holding you back, saying it's not time, having to be fucked, degrading people, especially if they have a little knowledge about socialism. All this leads us to the conclusion that staff is chicken shit. There's a point where you have to be cautious and compromise, yet there's a limit. We will not talk against people's temple to anyone because of you and a few innocent people may be hurt. You're the one that showed us the way. You're the one that boldly challenged capitalism and put a vision in our hearts. You're the one that proved to us that nothing is impossible. This is exactly how we feel. Nothing's impossible. A lot more could be said. We have a million things that could be said, but it's not necessary. Like we said earlier, we will contact you and wish to talk with you, and if you see fit, work with you. We want it to be known by you and staff that we don't believe in religion. We don't believe in God. We don't believe in reincarnation. We don't believe in impossible. We are not concerned with the beginning, the end, or the hereafter. We are only concerned about today. It is not an exaggeration to say that Jim Jones lost what was left of his mind when the eight revolutionaries left. 
These were not random members. They were people he had groomed as future leaders of this movement. And what he'd read in the letter made things worse. These young revolutionaries were ready for war. He had visions of them planting bombs or pulling off assassinations and leaving communiques proclaiming their continued loyalty to Jim Jones and the values embodied by People's Temple. He had to be careful with how he approached the situation in the church. Several of the eight revolutionaries still had family members in the temple, people who were important core members, including some who had come with the original group from Indiana. And if he flew right into denouncing them as traitors, he risked alienating their families, who had influence beyond their own blood. When he addressed the defectors to the planning commission for the first time, he expressed sympathy and concern. He said he was worried that they were going to do something rash and were going to get themselves hurt, and that if anyone heard from them, they should inform him immediately so that he could protect them and coax them back into the fold. He worried about who else the departed ones might have spoken to. Jim had let a few people leave in the past, but this was different. This had caught him completely off guard. The others who had left, they weren't as important. They were people who were a burden anyway. Their, their leaving was a relief. This was treason. Some of the traitors Jim Jones had known since they were small children, literally. They'd been raised in the church. Jim felt the loss as if one of his own children had gone. As soon as he learned of their departure, he chartered a private plane to fly over California freeways searching for the eight revolutionaries. He sent out search parties and interrogated their friends. This was impossible. He had to have them back but they didn't come back. And this is when everything broke. From the eight revolutionaries' letter, Jim had learned that he couldn't trust his own staff. The behavior of the people closest to him had caused them to flee. Jim Jones became consumed with ferreting out disloyalty after this. Consumed by it. He stood up a special organization within the church whose sole purpose was to spy on and report on other members. Outside the church, Jim saw enemies everywhere, more, more than he had before, and soon became convinced that the FBI and the CIA and other dark powers were conspiring with former members to destroy him and his people. Members of the planning commission were required to sign statements confessing to heinous crimes or to sign Blake statements to be filled in later. Crimes such as molesting their own children to guarantee against their ever trying to leave. One night at a meeting of the planning commission in San Francisco, Jim marked the occasion with a one-day suspension of the temple's policy against alcohol to serve his people a communion meal. Jim waited until his people had drunk the wine, and then he informed them that they had all just consumed a fatal dose of poison. Some of his people sat shocked into silence. Others pronounced their willingness to die for him and for the cause. A few didn't believe that it was true. Patty Cartmel panicked. 
She began screaming that she didn't want to die and running around the room like a crazy person. Mike Prokes stepped forward and ordered her to collect herself, but she continued carrying on, and so Mike Prokes pulled a gun and shot Patty Cartmel, and she fell onto her face, dead. The disbelievers believe now, and they began to weep. Jim Jones coaxed his people and led them into singing a dirge as they lamented their shortened time in a corrupted world. And then when it was over, Jim Jones told them that there was no poison. And Patty Cartmel rose, revealing that Prokes had fired a blank. Some of them had proven their loyalty and commitment. Others had proven themselves suspect. And everyone knew on which side they had fallen when the end had come. The car's on fire, and there's no driver at the wheel. And the sewers are all muddied with a thousand lonely suicides. And a dark wind blows. The government is corrupt, and we're on so many drugs with the radio on and the curtains drawn. We're trapped in the belly of this horrible machine, and the machine is bleeding to death. The sun has fallen down, and the billboards are all leering. And the flags were all dead at the top of their poles. It went like this. The buildings toppled in on themselves. Mothers clutching babies picked through the rubble. like the atmosphere of Germany in 1933. This writer retains a vivid memory of a brief encounter with Hitler in 1937. 
He was introduced to Adolf Hitler, the Nazi dictator. His skin was bronze. He had steely blue eyes and an elegance of manner. He had a sweet voice and more charm than most people are allowed to possess. He had a crisp, cold mind. He definitely was not a clown. I expect that a government like Adolf Hitler will happen here within the next five years. This is what I've been telling you for years, and here it is. Now we've been in your honkies. Shit heap. We've been in your honkies, dunghill. We've always had to come in at the side door, sit back and look at fine buildings. Now we have got something that belongs to us. Listen to me, God damn it. He lost his mind. Look, I said, what the fuck is going on? Life is shit. Your dad's been saying it a long time. Any life outside this collective is shit. And what, he's, what dad says about relationships is true too. Every, every bit of what dad says is true about it. And I'm grateful to him for teaching me because I'm not getting involved with a relationship. Because I don't, because I want to die a revolutionary death. And I, I believe, I've been, I've been hesitant, afraid, Point look good. Look good. Look good. And I don't want to put any, I don't want to put any guilt on her. It's just the truth. It's what Dad says is true, and it's true. Life is shit for socialism, and that's all we've got here. And I don't want to get involved in something that sidetracks me. What about you? I don't mind. I don't mind being tortured. What about you? You want to make a righteous man your enemy. You want to ponder it. 
Because a righteous person won't be afraid. That's something to think about. I'm just no longer afraid and I've lost interest in this old world of capitalist sin. And racism, I've lost interest in it. So if somebody wants to make me stay in it by compromising with filthy-minded people that cannot even have respect for somebody that would die for even his enemies, and they want to cause anarchy in our midst, I would just as soon bring it all to a gallant, a glorious, screaming end. Just bring it to a screeching stop in a one glorious moment of triumph. So you think about it.